0: Adam Curry, John C. DeVore. It's Sunday, May 19th, 2019. This is your award-winning Game Nation Media Assassination, episode 1139. This is
1: No Agenda.
0: Getting hitched and broadcasting live from the frontier of Austin, Texas, in the capital of the drone, Star State, uh, almost live. In the morning, everybody. I'm Adam Curry. And not from Silicon. Well, actually, right now, northern
1: Silicon. I don't know. I'm on the move. I'm John C. DeVore. Craig and Buzzkill. In the morning.
0: (laughs) He's on the move, everybody. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to uh, episode number 1139 of the best podcast in the universe, a special day. Actually, you know, I've seen a lot of shows that are starting to uh, do new numbering differently. You've been talking about this for a while. You're talking about seasons. Seasons and series and... (laughs) no. No, well, you know it's like <clears throat>
1: I know what I know what you're thinking.
0: I'm thinking oh, season been... I'm thinking season 11 ladies and gentlemen. Wow, these guys are great. Yeah, I need maybe. to binge that listen might be the way to do it. I need to binge listen to them. Season 11 show number 39 or whatever it is. Well, is. We'll think about it. Yeah, yeah,
1: it, kind of. It makes it sound
0: m- more broadcasty. <laughs> Maybe that's exactly the problem with it. <laughs> we shouldn't try to sound more broadcasty. We're podcasties. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. So, well, t- today is a is a big day. Yeah, you're getting married.
1: Yes, and so uh, we. This is actually. I had to. I know it's going to be tough for anyone to imagine how we can do this, but we're doing a show. Just before the wedding. Yes. So like a few minutes before the wedding, we're doing this. <laughs> and then you're going to run right to the wedding right after we close this and, and ship it.
0: Yeah. Right? And, and once I say I do, then I go back to upload and do the RSS feed. Yeah. <laughs> you're a workaholic. Exactly. So what we
1: have today for the uh, dedicated uh, listeners is a couple of interviews that I did. Right, one with Anthony Scaramucci. Now wait, th- and, now,
0: hold on a second. This is months ago. You did this, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but it was. I I knew it wasn't going to be used till the wedding, so I made okay. it very evergreeny.
0: So okay, so well, evergreeny as in um, ho hum, or just topics? No, no, it's
1: very interesting stuff. A lot of personal stuff. We go into yeah. an actual discussion, for example, of Donald Trump's weight. Oh. <laughs> Now, but do you talk about, does does Scar Mooch, doesn't he have a hot wife? Yeah, he's
0: got a hot wife in New York. We also talk about his restaurant. He has a restaurant. Did you know that? No, but somehow it does not surprise me. And even better, I'd like to know if I can go there when visiting Manhattan and say, tell Mooch it's a curry from No Agenda. (laughs) I can give you the answer to that. Yeah, get the fuck out.
1: (laughs) Not happening. Right. And so uh, even with the interview, I, mean, I couldn't get that leeway. Now, oh, really? um, hmm. then then we're going to have a, a little, just a little over an hour discussion with the Chris Stoll. Cliff, I said Chris.
0: Oh, okay. Yes, Cliff Clifford. Stoll. Yes, Cliff Stoll. Writer
1: and, very famous. Yes, astronomer. Uh, I've, I've, you can go look at his TED Talks if you want to see what he's like. Uh, he's very excitable. And he's got a lot of thoughts, and I worked with him for years back in the days of Tech TV. Before, uh, actually, MSNBC, I believe he was on that. Uh, he was on that operation for a while. Mm-hmm. Like anyway, I've known him for. He lives nearby, and so I figured. And I have nobody's heard from him for a while, so I thought an interview with him because he has a lot of interesting thoughts. So, what did you more, talk about with him? A little more techy than uh, than Scaramucci.
0: Yeah, what kind we of talked topics? about?
1: Uh, uh, the pla- we talked about what your pal Professor Ted talks about usually, oh, uh, the plague of the internet, the negative oh, aspects of, nice. of social media, the negative aspects of computers in schools, the negative this, the negative yes, the, that. Uh,
0: the unintended consequences of technology.
1: Yes. And so yeah. that's a fascinating interview, so I think people will enjoy it. We uh, might as well get started. Let's just go right to uh, uh, Anthony uh, Scaramucci. We have here uh, Anthony Scaramucci, who just finished a book called Trump, the Blue Collar President. Um, and I will say at the beginning, I've read this book, and I think it's uh, – I can highly recommend it. It is very entertaining. It's uh, kind of a interesting romp between uh, Anthony's uh, background and Donald Trump's background. And it, it was very – it's very well structured. I liked it. Uh, so what – Drove you to, anyway, welcome to uh, the No Agenda Show. Well, uh,
2: John, thanks for inviting me on. And I'm, I mean, you joined my mother as the only two people I know that have read the book. So I'm very delighted to have met <laughs> you over this podcast. But in all seriousness, thank you for the comments because I really tried to structure it in a way where I thought it would provide some entertainment, but also some sociological background of why the president was able to gravitate so many blue collar people to his base and to his agenda.
1: A couple of things about the book I want to ask right away, uh, which is, I've read a lot of these types of books uh, written by Italians, and yours is probably the only one that doesn't have a, a more of an emphasis on the cooking of the grandma. <laughs> no,
2: you didn't. You didn't read my first book, okay? I mean, I got it. I got it, oh, okay. I got it all. I got it all out of my system. And goodbye, Gordon Gecko. Talked about my uh, my nana in there, how she used to hit us with the wooden spoon if we weren't paying attention. And, so, uh, if you, if you, if you read a lot of books about Italians that are my age, uh, they are all reminiscent of the plastic covering on the furniture in those people's homes. Okay. My, my grandmother and grandfather had rugs that were, uh, they had plastic runners over them. And they, I, I think my grandmother waited until she was about 65 to take the plastic off the couch. I was an uncomfortable 40 years of that couch, man.
1: Yes, uh in fact I recall that era personally. I remember seeing people that had everything covered with plastic. I said, "What are you saving it for somebody else?"
2: Right, exactly. That's a funny sound like me. That's how I used to say to my Nana. What what is it what it's all well, I mean, is it going to be in the next generation or what? what so
1: are so are you the cook?
2: Uh no, I'm actually a, an Italian mama's boy, which makes me the eater and not the cook, you know. I'm the guy that uh Dropped his underwear right where I took it off and my mother swooped in behind me and next thing you know, it was ironed and pressed, okay? And so unfortunately that ended for me in 1982 when I went to college. And so, uh, no, I'm basically – I'm very clean. I probably shower twice a day but I'm the most disorganized train wreck because I had an Italian mom and I'm an Italian mama's boy. You are a hedge fund guy.
1: Correct um and I want to just ask for the just the general listener, can you describe what that means what is what is running a hedge fund entail yeah what we would I think the public generally thinks is just you just you just rake in lots of money doing pretty much nothing
2: yeah, I mean obviously that's uh, you know there's a lot of jealousy in the media and so the media wants to characterize it that way, but there's three trillion dollars in our Industry in terms of assets under management for a reason. We actually do a pretty good job for people. So, you would come to a uh, a hedge fund manager if you were looking for like a high single digit rate of return, a seven, eight, nine percent return, with very low volatility and relative consistency. And so, a lot of people have money in the stock market, but there's a lot of volatility there. We just saw a ten percent correction in the month of October 2018, as an example. Uh, but what a hedge fund manager, if they're doing their jobs right, they generate a high absolute return with low volatility. And so it, it takes a lot of work. There's 60 people in my organization. I started this company with three people in 2005. We're about to celebrate our 14th year in business uh, this coming March. And uh, we've got about $10 billion under management. And one of the things that we tried to do is we tried to democratize the industry. And so I set up a structure – uh, having gone to Harvard Law School and understanding the security regs, I set up a new structure which has been replicated now uh, where we're able to have investors with minimums of about $25,000. So I, I, I've sort of opened up the hedge fund investing to the mass affluent. I wrote a book about this uh, in 2012 called The Little Book of Hedge Funds, uh, which was basically a primer or an ex. Explanatory book on what people should know about hedge funds—the pluses and the minuses, for that matter. So, uh, and that was well received. And uh, we have about forty-one thousand clients, uh, over ten billion dollars under management. And uh, you know, one thing about the president—he made me as famous as Melania and Ivanka. I didn't have to—I didn't have to sleep with him or be his daughter, but he made me pretty famous. And so, it's raised the profile of my business, uh, which has been helpful
1: publicity is good
2: yeah I, I no question and in my business certainly because we've got good performance that back up the publicity
1: well you've been on a lot of shows I mean you've been on uh, dr. Phil yep you did a thing for Facebook yep uh, you went on Stephen Colbert uh, right after you were uh, uh, released from the White House yep uh, what did you think of that experience? Because I watched that episode and I thought it was uh, – I thought they were rude yeah. to be honest about it.
2: Well, I mean look. They're angry about the president. They don't like the president. Uh, they're they they are are building a fan base of anti-Trumpsters. So uh, when I expressed the willingness to go on the show after Stephen was excoriating me during my time inside the White House, I think they were all taken aback. But I, I know how to take incoming. I was happy to go on and uh, give my point of view. Uh, I was on Bill Maher's show uh, this past weekend. I've done his show a few times. Again, uh, it's like being a Yankee in Fenway Park or a Dodger in Fenway Park. You know, it's a, it's a rough place. Uh, but I feel that uh, we've got to get back to talking to each other. You know, we may not agree ideologically. We may see the country going in different directions for different reasons. But if we don't talk to each other, I think it's a very big mistake. I like to tell people I'm a patriot first. And I'm partisan last. Uh, I have a certain philosophical view uh, based on my years of experience in business and my observation about what works from a point of view of policy. Uh, But what I don't want to do is ever close myself off to the other person's point of view. John John Kennedy had a great line, which I share with everybody. Uh, He said, I spent a lot of time understanding the other side because there's obviously very smart people on the other side. And I may learn something from them or conversely, they may sharpen and provide me with more ammunition for my own argument. And so we have to do that in our society.
1: You get a perverse thrill when you try to des- describe a situation and Bill Maher uh, – and part of that description entails somebody getting all worked up and Bill Maher actually goes uh, kind of ballistic right in front of you?
2: Well, I mean I, I can't tell you I'm getting a thrill because I'm trying to explain something and – you know, but they – Sometimes they have a hard time. They, you know it's very emotionally charged, you know so what uh, uh, I, I think what I'm able to do though is I'm able to uh, detach myself a little bit from the heat of the argument and try to relate to people uh, where I think they really live is when all the emotions die down, where they really live is in that common sense altimeter uh, where they can sense when someone's speaking uh, common sense as opposed to, uh, spin or ideological pablum, uh, and I like going on these shows because, you know, I, I I experienced Washington. I felt everybody in Washington was on spin cycle, but most New Yorkers are on a rinse cycle. And so for me, I can sit there, and you know, I don't have any prepared notes. I don't have any uh, sound bites that I'm ready to spill out of my mouth at a moment's notice. And I'm just trying to respond and interact with somebody on an intellectual basis and. And hopefully, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm not winning them over, at least I can explain directionally why half the country feels the way I do.
1: What do you think Trump's top skills are?
2: Uh, he's got an unnatural, unnatural level of charisma, unnatural. Uh, it has to do with the fact that he has decided that he is going to be completely uninhibited In a media environment, that's 45 years of doing radio, television, public speaking, signing books, writing books, uh, promoting his brands. Uh, He has a completely uninhibited approach. And and again, I'm not picking on these people, but let's go over the 17 other candidates that were in that race that were running against him for the Republican nomination. You know, they are – you know, they've got the millstone on their necks of consultant-speak, the millstone on their necks of uh, practiced can't say certain things that could be offensive. Um, and so he has that capability. Uh, he's got unbelievable political instincts, unbelievable. Uh, and I write about that in my book. At the end of the day, he could have had 10 political consultants telling him to pick choice A, but he felt choice B was the right choice. He would go with choice B. Uh, he had people telling him, "Listen, you're not going to win in Wisconsin or uh, or Michigan. Don't spend any time there, uh, and don't spend any time in Pennsylvania. That that state's really not purple. It's been blue for 32 years. Don't spend any time there." And he looked at that and said, "No, there's an opportunity there. There's a vacuum of advocacy for these blue collar people. You know, the the left spent their time." Focused on – listen, a couple of dolphins uh, got killed from eating plastic straws. Absolute tragedy. I'm not trying to make light of it. But they spent their time focused on that or the polar ice caps melting. Again, a disturbing fact and uh, not trying to make light of it. But they left out of the equation for at least a generation what was going on in the middle class and the lower middle class. And whether you like the president or not, he saw that opening. And he did something that has to be marveled at if you're a political scientist. He, he hijacked the Republican Party from the establishment Republicans who hate his guts. And then he reached into the Democratic Party and he stole their base and moved it over to the Republicans. So, again, you can hate him, but this guy's got incredible political instincts and he's a showman. And, and by the way, he's an entertainer. Don't lose sight of that. He's the entertainer-in-chief. He knows – had to get a crowd riled up. He once said, or somebody wrote about him, that he's the only guy that can fill an arena without a musical instrument, right? He just shows up. He's going to say some crazy stuff. It, you, 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 at any moment, it looks like there's going to be a car crash. Uh, and he's out there malapropping and talking in his usual zaniness. And there's 8,000, 10,000 people waiting online uh, to get into the overfilled capacity of that arena. Those, those are his skills. He's also a gregarious guy. You know The media will paint him as not being the case. But when you're in his presence, uh, he's a lot of fun to be with. Does he get a lot of sleep? Uh, I actually cannot figure that out. I mean somebody should examine this guy because he has a supernatural capacity to not get sleep. And I'll just quote one of his doctors. He's the only human being that we've met where his eating habits are not affecting his health. So I can't figure that out either, okay? I, I, I've had more than one meal with him, one interesting one in the White House where he was pounding down the beef wellington, which is like a filet mignon wrapped in this bakery crust. And he was like, yeah, pass the sauce over here. Pass more of that gravy. I'm like, I mean, this gravy probably like 5 million calories. you know." I mean, but he pounds it down, no problem, uh, has unlimited amounts of energy. Uh, this is a guy that can do 11 campaign stops in four days prior to an election. This is a guy that was speaking in Altoona, PA at 10.30 at night. We were all exhausted. He gets back on the plane, wants to fly to Michigan, do one more campaign stop at 12.30 in the morning. That's him. I don't know how he does it, but that's him. And he's 72. But he, but here's a lesson for your listeners of this podcast. Don't smoke and don't drink, which neither thing the president does. And you, too, can uh, fly around on Air Force One like a maniac. What do you think he weighs? Oh, wow! You're gonna get me in trouble. This is like breaking news. Uh, well, how about this? How about not two thirty nine? How's that? Okay. I mean, I think his published weight is two thirty nine. I will take the over on that. He'd be mad at me for saying that. I, I don't know what he weighs, but it's not two thirty nine. Um,
1: one thing would, in so far his as his skills are concerned, something that you kind of pointed out in the book, which is the skill of timing. And this is related to his doing the New York skating rink. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it seems as though he was in the right place at the right time. Or if, and if he was premature yep. in, in trying to do something, he would come back at exactly the right moment and then kind of swoop in. And which is the way I kind of felt he ran for president. No question. It was a timing no, thing.
2: No question. Because he looked at running for president in 88, paused and stopped. He looked again for running at president in 1993 and stopped. And then he took a very serious foray in 2000 to potentially grab the nomination of the Reform Party. flew out to L.A. He was practicing his negatives on John McCain, who he thought was going to be the Republican nominee. The first time I heard the words, I like my heroes, uncaptured, uh, were in an interview. You can go back and Google this. He was being interviewed in 2000 by Dan Rather for 60 Minutes, yeah. and he was testing that out because he thought John McCain was going to be the Republican nominee in 2000. He abandoned that because his political instincts correctly dictated that you're not going to win the presidency in this country from a third party. And so he stayed out of the fray, really contemplated the 2012 race, did not want to run against a presidential incumbent. Good instincts there because – Very hard to defeat an incumbent unless you have a disaster going on in the economy. And so we didn't have a – if anything, we had a stable economy in 12, improving an economy. Very hard to beat a sitting president. So he waited it out and then he struck the nerve of the anxiety that's taking place in our system related to the blue-collar experience and the decline in living standards. And he went out there and preached that mantra – um, and, and that mantra, by the way, is tied to immigration because that, that, uh, the, the illegal immigration has certainly affected wage growth in our society. And he went out there and he made that case and he made the case in a way that was unbelievably unorthodox. And even though we were outspent almost two to one by Secretary Clinton's campaign and we were outmanned, I would say, almost three to one by her – Uh, uh, he was able to capture the presidency because he was able to get his message out in the American media in a way that was nothing short of staggering. It was billions and billions of dollars of free media, Uh, whether they were televising a rally or they were interviewing him or he was calling into their shows. uh, he, He literally was able to use the media as almost a third arm of his campaign strategy. Do you surf? I don't, but did you did you catch that analogy about surfing in there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, as soon
1: as I read that, I said, "What, what yeah. is this doing in here?" He doesn't seem like a surfer. No, in me. I'm
2: not a I'm not a surfer, but I, I can discern waves because you know there's a contradef wave in our uh, economic system, and there are other waves. Elliot wave theory for investing, and my point, the metaphor of the surfing for your listeners. Was I really feel that these politicians are surfers and they have to get on that surfboard and ride a wave into shore that fits their personality. As an example, Jeb Bush would have been a phenomenal presidential candidate in the early 90s to mid 90s. Wrong candidate for 2016, but a phenomenal guy. Governor Romney, oh. same sort of thing. They, they, their personalities are just too bland.
1: You were a supporter of Romney, and then you kind of switched over to Jeb Bush before you finally uh, latched onto the Trump uh, Mm -hmm. bandwagon. Yes, how did that happen?
2: Well, because I didn't believe him. You know, I I write in the book that uh, I'm sitting with him the day after the Apprentice ends. We're having breakfast in the Trump Tower, and he's telling me he's running for president. I'm laughing. I'm like, "You're not running for president." I mean, you weren't the
1: only one doing
2: that. Yeah, of course. And he said that. Yeah, every I said to him. He said you weren't watching The Apprentice last night. I said no, of course not. He goes, well, you were the only one that wasn't watching it. I was fantastic. I said, oh, I'm sure you were. But he's like, well, it's over now. I'm running. I'm running for president. I said, no, you're not. He said, no, no, I totally am. I said, let me tell you something. I said, you're at two percent in the polls. You're not going to run for president. He goes, I'm at two percent in the polls because people are like you. Okay, they think I'm not running, but the minute I start running, I'm going to shoot to the top of the polls, and I'm going to stay there until I win the presidency. And I got to tell you, you know, at least on the Republican side, that's what he did. Go take a look at those polling numbers. You know, there was nobody in shooting range. Yeah, a couple of guys won because of the party system and the establishment. They won a few primaries against him, but very few. And, uh, you know, he was right, right at the top as it related to the popular vote among registered Republicans. So I didn't see it. Uh, I admit that in the book. Um, I also didn't see the level of economic desperation. Despite the fact that I grew up in a blue-collar family, I have spent too much time with wealthy people and, and I have the confirmed biases of running my hedge fund and interacting with wealthy people. And so when I descended into these towns with then-candidate Trump, I write in my book that it was quite eye-opening what I saw in those towns and the composite of what I saw – is that we went from a generation of aspirational working-class families to desperational ones in about 35 years. And the public servants of the established class didn't really see it. And if they saw it, they were indifferent to it. And so uh, he was able to capitalize on that in a way that I think will be viewed as historic.
1: Well, talking about hanging out with the rich, can you explain to me, and I'm from this area – How the richest guys in Silicon Valley, many billionaires, there's quite a few of them, uh, are all Democrats?
2: Well, I can't. But I mean what I often think about, there's a level of guilt and there's a level of self-preservation that's more important to some of these people than actual public policy. And so what ends up happening is they are uh, sitting there with a boatload of money. They feel very guilty about it and they feel that they can – be progressive or ultra liberal, and that'll give them a pass. And that's by and large been true from the American media. So if you're super rich but you're liberal, American media leaves you alone. If you're super rich but conservative, they burn you in effigy and they try to demonize you. And so, you know, to me, I think it's more of a self preservation thing than it is a principle based thing because how'd you get the money? You got the money because we've set up a market based system. In our society, which has led to incredible growth and innovation and job creation and unbelievable success for people. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we have a society that will reward people for their ingenuity and risk taking. You know, you cannot systematize, despite what the left says, you're never going to be able to systematize an equal outcome. We should be way more focused from a policy perspective on figuring out ways to create more equal opportunity uh where our educational system K through 12 the public system is a failure uh, it's broken it's very uneven uh we should be spending more time figuring out a way to get a kid who's living in a uh less than affluent neighborhood a good public school education as opposed to trying to figure out how to overtax people and 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 wealth redistribute it doesn't work it slows down growth it slows down opportunity Uh, And it it stunts the system. And if you don't believe me, we have 150 years of documented history on this throughout the world where people have tried it.
1: When you uh, first showed up at the White House and then left 11 days uh, later, um, my take on it was that, well, here they brought this guy in as a hatchet man to get rid of uh, Rance Priebus. And Bannon. Uh, But as I read the book, it obviously was a more convoluted – Road. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't as though they just brought in you as a hatchet man to get rid of Rance Priebus. Yeah. But that's, that's kind of what it looks like in hindsight.
2: Yeah, well, but, listen. I mean I, I, I definitely served that purpose. There's no question about that. But if you you know, if you know—if remember in the book, I was offered the OPL position. Yeah. I accepted that job. Priebus and Bannon tried to block me from that job. And then I did something really, really stupid. I mean I did many things stupid. But the biggest stupid thing I did was I put my pride and my ego – into trying to secure that job you
1: see that's what i do what let right. let's back to the you, you right. mentioned the uh, bannon and Priebus forming a coalition of of bad guys um which you thought was peculiar because they weren't similar characters by any means and they wanted to block you from that particular job why do you think that was i mean did you have some sort of a better in with Trump did you because you knew him more person you know knew him personally I, I, uh, or what what was the yeah, purpose I, of their trying to it, block you why didn't they just let you go there and then just you know leave you there
2: yeah I mean that would have been a better strategy I think for all of us right if they just let me alone I was not I think Priebus probably figured I was tight with the president and who knows you know uh, him him and me together you know remember Priebus was an establishment guy he was flooding the zone inside the White House with RNC people that were not necessarily loyal to the president but were, you know, more loyal to Priebus. And so I think he looked at me and and for that matter, not to take it so personally to me, he looked at guys like Giuliani, Chris Christie, John Laval, who was a Suffolk County chairman out here on Long Island. He looked at all those people and said, okay, these are New Yorkers. I'm going to do everything I can to block these New Yorkers from coming down here to Washington. And so – Uh, And he was successful at doing that. So he slow rolled me and he slow rolled those guys. I was probably the only guy due to the uh, determination of my personality and the persistence where I was like a dog on a bone. I wouldn't let up until I found my way through the door at the White House. And so, you know, and then once I got the job, I probably mishandled it in a number of different ways. You probably shouldn't start your first day at the White House with a chainsaw and a hockey mask from Jason's Friday the 13th movie. You know what I mean? Once I started the <laughs> chainsaw, I went after those two guys with a vengeance and I should have been more careful about that.
1: You uh, go after Bannon in the book a little bit. Not as much as you could. It's a lot of it subtle, which brings me to the question. Well, that brings me to the question of you claimed claim. I don't want to use that word claim because I don't like it. But you say you're uh, you are a class clown.
2: That I'm I'm a class clown, or he was a class clown.
1: No, was, you were a class clown.
2: Yeah, I was a prankster in school. No question about that. I I uh, had a. Are you still? Well, I I don't know. I look. I had a I had a reasonable high I, IQ, and I had an okay work ethic. I got serious once I got to college, which helped me get into a Harvard Law School. But you know, I don't know. I, I I play for laughs. There's no question about that. I have. There's an entertainment streak in my personality. Uh, you can see that there's some irreverence in the book in terms of the way I describe certain situations, myself included. Uh, but I would say about Bannon you know, that he was, uh, he was a guy when uh, he thought he needed you. He was very polite, very seductive. But he was a guy when he didn't need you, uh, you were a, a disposable uh, piece of tissue. And so all of that stuff is coming back to roost on Bannon now. You know, he's, he's spitzerized. OK, and what do I mean by that? When Elliot Spitzer went down 10 years ago, uh, because he was so mean and nasty to so many people, uh, there was nobody there to save him. And so he Spitzerized and now he's going to rallies where five or ten people are around him. And uh, you know he's, he's lost an element of his self-proclaimed uh, guru nature. And, and, uh, and so look, I mean – but for me, I thought he was just very dishonest. Uh, he's an unbelievable leaker. Uh, if you look at what the president said about him in the press release in January of 2018, it was virtually identical to what I was saying about him. Uh, unfortunately, I got caught on a hot mic, which is fine. But, uh, you know, the, the journalist took it totally out of context. I, he was trying to get me to do a profile with him in his magazine. And I'm like, I'm not self-promotional like that, like Steve is. And then I used an inappropriate word and he said, OK, I've hit the jackpot here. Let me run this over to CNN and exaggerate. Uh, what happened. So it's fine. I'm a big boy. I, I paid the price with my job. I write about it honestly in the book. I'm very accountable for the mistake.
1: But Actually, you don't write about it. I don't think you're necessarily uh, as firm as you could have been. Uh, I mean, that was a ch- chicken shit thing that happened uh, from a journalist perspective. Well, I, and generally I, speaking, yeah, but it I, doesn't I, happen. But no, it doesn't. I mean, mention- Howie,
2: Howie Kurtz said in 40 years in Washington, he's never seen a journalist do that to a governmental official. So but you know that's okay. There's a first time for everything. I made the mistake by talking to the guy, right? So I mean, I have to own that. Shouldn't have talked to him. Back, back to Bannon.
1: Yeah. Uh, early in the book, you say that Steve Bannon. You you compare him to a, a blood-sucking vampire bat.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's and then later in the book, you have this sentence, which is the only thing I've actually excerpted for this interview because I thought it was it was pretty funny. 'Cause it was subtle. It was like uh it was it was kind of literate, but at the same time rude. Active leaking addiction never ends well. Bannon's sure didn't. Remember how he looked leaving the White House? A Harvard educated cuck draped in contemporary hobo.
2: Yeah. That's pretty good though, right? I thought it was quite yeah. good. I thought I mean, it was
1: uh, – you, you actually put some thought I mean, into that. I mean, yeah, I think probably because he re- – wrote cu- the book around
2: that yeah. couple of sentences. Yeah, he's a cuck. He's ultimately a cuck. At the end of the day, he went to Harvard Business School. He worked at Goldman Sachs. He was in Hollywood. I mean he's hit the triangulation of every one of those nexuses, and then he tries to pretend that he's some outsider uh, that's focused on ethnocentrism and white nationalism. I mean I, I, I think the guy's – an incredibly flawed guy, but wickedly smart and very well read. I, 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 made a joke at one of the college campuses that, you know, if you ever are doubting God or if you're falling into the trap of atheism, just remember this: as seductive and as smart as Steve Bannon is, God made him so ugly and made him dress so inappropriately uh, that uh, his ideas will never be taken seriously. Thankfully, by the civilization. So, so to me, he's not my cup of tea. I've offered to debate Steve Bannon. I've offered to debate Reince Priebus place, anywhere, uh, and I'll continue to wait on that. You, you, it, I think you know who he is. I was on his radio show. He said that he's in love with Reince Priebus. He's one of his best friends. I said, oh, great. Invite Reince Priebus on your radio show with me. Let's have an honest and candid conversation about what he's really like with the people that he worked with inside the White House. You think that will yes. happen, my brother? Okay, uh, hell hell will freeze over before that happens.
1: Well, there's no reason for him to want to do
2: that. Where is Rance Priebus now? I don't even know. Apparently, I think he went back to his Wisconsin law firm and I think he's keeping a low profile because – you know, I mean he he burnt up a lot of people. I mean it's not – forget about just me. uh, He just burnt up a lot of people and so – he exposed his full-blown insecurity in that job and he expo- expo- exposed his le- levels of uh, low self-esteem and low self-confidence. Uh, a-, a players go out and try to hire A-plus people. Uh, uh, C players like a guy like him, they'll, they'll hire Ds and Fs. Why did Trump hire him? Well, I think Trump felt that he had, uh, he had helped him uh, with the apparatus and technology around the RNC and I think Trump felt a level of loyalty, and Trump also felt that if he had him in the White House, he was tight with uh, Paul Ryan, and he was a member of that Washington sediment um, that he could help him drain the swamp. But what, what the mistake that the president made is that he put a cesspool operator uh, in the most important job in the system. And so all, all that guy was doing was pouring more sewage into the system. You're not, you're not going to drain the swamp by bringing a cesspool operator that's lived in the swamp for 15 years in to drain the swamp. They're not going to do it. They Their goal is to outlast you and to continue to work the lobbying and currying of favor business inside of Washington uh, to line their own pockets. They're not, they're not there to serve the American people. The American people are onto that. They, the American people know that. One of the biggest reasons they had to get me out of there – I don't know if you saw my first press conference – but the, uh, my, my, the critics of my first press conference are like, you were too honest. Can't, you can't talk the truth like that from the White House pro- podium. What are you, nuts? And, that, and that's and, – and the, but the American people know it. That, you know, one thing that the president has done for the society is he's fully exposed the cockroaches that live in the kitchen known as Washington. Okay, The lights are on now. They're crawling around stunned that they're being uh, caught with all of their nonsense.
1: We'll talk – well, on the subject of cockroaches. Do you think the White House was bugged?
2: Uh, I don't know. I would – I got to believe no. Uh, But I will say this. They dismantled the Oval Office in August of 2017 and rebuilt it. So um, I'm hoping that the answer is no. I don't know the answer.
1: It just seems like a lot of the stories that the media was picking up on always predate the moment that the uh, Oval Office was uh, reconstructed. Just coincidence maybe? Not sure.
2: Coincidence, but it's also previous in Bannon. There were 60 to 70% of the leaks. Once they were removed, the leaks really did go down dramatically. Still leaking. Every White House is going to leak, but it's not not leaking with that level of – Animosity and that level of venom towards each other—you know that that's gone down a lot.
1: You, uh, what do you think of the New York Times hit piece on Trump, uh, which, if you read in great detail, this is the recent one where Trump uh, apparently never had any money to begin with, and he was uh, pretty much financed by his father Fred. And if you read between the lines, it kind of implies, uh, against all logic, that Fred Trump was a multi-billionaire that could just throw. M- Tons of money at his son.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, I've seen the uh, documentary. Active measures. Uh, he's apparently uh, he's a puppet of Vladimir Putin, and now he made you know he just siphoned all the money off from his dad illegally, and uh, you know I've heard all of these different things. But if you really look closely at the article, uh, whatever happened there between him and his dad, it was clearly inside of the seam. Off the tax code, and, and I took uh, taxation in law school. There's a very famous uh, decision. Uh, that the name of the justice is Justice Learned Hand. You could Google the decision. It's about what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as it relates to the tax code. And 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 Justice Hand basically says you can be aggressive as long as you're inside the seam of the code. And so, I think that they're stretching things a little bit in that story. Um, I don't know if the president got a million dollars from his father to start his business or $413 million to start his business. Uh, but I, it doesn't really matter to the average American. I think that's the point. The average American views him as a very successful guy. Uh, he was successful in real estate. He had a rise and fall, which I describe in the book, and then he rose again. Uh, so there's a level of force and determination in his personality. He went on to become a television star. I don't think anybody can take that away from him. And then from the process of being a television star, uh, he switched over to American politics and in 17 short months became the American president. So you know, I'd like to think that given the high-profile nature of uh, the president's life over the last 40 years, if he was really doing something aggressively nefarious as what is being described, he's such a high-profile target for a – DA that wants to be the mayor or the governor. Uh, they, they would have gone af- after him with a vengeance. So I put about the same level of weight on that story as most Americans do, which is, you know, moving on.
1: I, I think that's probably w- what the reaction was. But it was followed up then by an, uh, an anonymous op ed, which was rare. Written by some supposed insider in the White House. Do you yep. think that was an insider in the White House? You think? So, yeah, what? Do you, what's your take on so, that? And who do you think so, it might be?
2: So, you know, I I got an eleven day PhD in Washington scumbaggery. Okay, so I can tell you that there's no way a senior guy would have written that. And so, what they would have used is a cutout. They would have gotten one of the junior guys to write that and put it in there. And so what that is is that's a that's a cockroach survival note. And so the the chef is in the kitchen. He's going to be here for four to eight years. But my fellow cockroaches, I'm going to survive him, and so will you. And when I return back to cockroach land after serving this guy, I want you not to treat me poorly. Uh, and that and that's basically what that was. That was a. To me, it was the most dishonest and most disloyal thing. You're serving the elected president of the United States, the leader of the free world. You may not like him, uh, but if you don't like him and you don't like his policies, then leave. Uh, I just think that that was the most dishonest, most disingenuous thing. And again, another example of why the American people actually hate the swamp and they hate every aspect of the swamp.
1: What's the New York Times grudge
2: against Trump? Uh, he has been right, and they have been wrong. That's the that's the grudge. Uh, they they had a circular two years ago. They had a seven or, or eight page circular on the case against Donald Trump, and it wasn't just an editorial; it was like an eight page circular that they inserted into the newspaper. And. Uh, and then they had to apologize to him after the election. They had to apologize to him. Do you follow, do you follow what I'm saying? So Yeah, but I mean, did they, I mean, this what was is, the form of the apology? Well, the, the apology was we were too bellicose with our rhetoric. We were too negative. Uh, I mean they've ramped it up subsequent to that. Um, but I'm just saying that uh, the, the, the New York Times is uh, – they don't like the president's policies. They don't like the president's personality and they don't like the fact the president's winning – and they've been on the losing side of the argument for the last thirty-six months. So, so they're they're going to continue to be in that camp. And he's done a masterful job of getting these left-leaning media establishments to hate his guts. Uh, he has figured out by throwing Molotov cocktails or puffery or exaggerating statements, they're going to act like hall monitors, uh, fact-checking him and uh, the whole you know. Charlie Brown teacher, you know, that's what they're doing on their television shows. And he's laughing. He's laughing. He knows that he's got them totally distracted. And as John Stewart said the other day, that he has figured out that he, he may be a narcissist, but they're as narcissistic as him. and And he's made it about them. And they love talking about them on their shows. And so that was a masterful thing that he's done so far, masterful.
1: You liked uh, Stone's movie Wall Street. I did. You mentioned this in the book. Yeah, I did. But you didn't mention The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, yeah. I would like to know – I mean Wall Street is the Gordon Gecko movie for anyone who doesn't remember it uh, with you know, greed is good and all those sorts of uh, cliches. Uh, and The Wolf of Wall Street, of course, was more about the excesses. Uh, what did you – And you're in the business, so what do you think about comparing those two movies? What do you think of The Wolf of Wall Street?
2: Well, you know, the reason I like the Wall Street movie is that I was a young man. I was in my uh, mid-20s when that movie came out. I was 23 or 24, and I was aspiring to go to Wall Street. And so even though it was a cautionary tale about greed and excess, I thought it was well-presented. And Michael Douglas won the Academy Award for it. And in the second movie – uh, Oliver Stone came to me and gave me the opportunity to play myself in the movie. And so there's pictures of me in my office here with Josh Brolin and and Michael Douglas with my kids. And so I learned a lot about the artistic interpretation of Wall Street. And I, my first book was called Goodbye, Gordon Gecko, How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul. And basically it was a – It was titled that way to talk about the fact that greed actually isn't good and you have to take a long-term approach to things in the world of financial services. And so I'm fond of that movie for those sentimental reasons. Um, I was asked to be in The the Wolf of Wall Street. I have a good relationship with uh, uh, Leo DiCaprio and Bo Dietl who played uh, one of the roles in the movie. And I elected not to be in that movie because that movie was not about An interpretation, there was a fact set related to this guy, Jordan Belfort, where he literally did everything that you're not supposed to do as a money manager. He fleeced the people. He sold them things that uh, were literally dreams, pipe dreams, and he did many, many illegal things. And so for me, I'm not saying there isn't a darker side to Wall Street. There clearly is. Uh, I believe there's a darker side to journalism. There's a dark, darker side to medicine. Unfortunately, uh, we're human beings, and, and darkness lives in a lot of different sectors of the economy. But I was not a supporter of that movie uh, because one of the problems with a movie like that, because it is factual, it's it's back to that cliche that one bad apple could spoil the whole basket of apples. And so, to me, you know, I've had th- it's my 30th year on Wall Street but for my brief interregnum at uh, the White House. And uh, by and large, we've tried to do a good job. The reason why we're running $10 billion is we have a good track record and we're honest people. So that's the reason why I co- compare and contrast the, uh, the two things.
1: In the early days, you were a supporter of Obama in some way because you uh, yep. raised money for him after you met him at the university club.
2: Yep. Uh, well, I had, uh, I had gone to school with him. I can't honestly say we were close friends in school or anything like that, but I had a lot of friends of mine at Harvard Law School that were friends with him. I was less uh, involved with politics at that time. Uh, I was a right of center person, and I'm reasonably far left on social issues. I believe people should be able to express. I don't think life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is only for straight people. I think that everyone should have that opportunity. And so when he presented himself, I said, okay, that seems like a. You know, you guys like him. You know him personally. And I said to myself rhetorically, how many times in my life am I going to know somebody that's actually running for president and could possibly be the president? Little did I know that that, would, that wouldn't be the first time, you know, and I uh, and ended up working in the White House for a short period. But, but, you know, when he started becoming more progressively left-driven on the economy and more progressively left-driven on business – I sort of return to my Republican roots. But I do like the president. I like President Obama. I have a lot of respect for him and his life. He's the Jackie Robinson of American politics and uh, we may not agree on everything related to the the business side of things or the economy but uh, I am happy with the social progress that was created during his administration.
1: You used the phrase, he slam dunked you in the book, maybe twice. Yeah. And yep. it's it was it, even in context I can't figure out what you're talking about.
2: Well, I was on a I was on a television show with him in 2010. It was at the CNBC town hall, public live at the museum down the block on Pennsylvania Avenue, and he came in there and they were interviewing him, and uh, I was an audience participant. I asked him a question. I said. Mr. President, nice to see you again. We reacquainted ourselves, and then I said, uh, "When are you going to stop whacking Wall Street with a pinata stick?" So the first thing is, if you're an Italian American, don't use the word "whack" on live TV in front of the president. I think that was mistake number one. And then mistake number two is, you know, he was adamant that Wall Street was a big cause of the financial crisis, and so he came back at me very hard. Uh, and of course, he's the president. I'm not. I didn't get a chance to rebut him. And so he metaphorically slam dunked me on that live television show, so much so that Jon Stewart that night on Comedy Central lampooned me to the great delight of my uh, teenage children at that time. What did he say? Uh, Jon Stewart basically – No, no. What did did Obama say? Oh, what did Obama say? Uh, Obama said that – I was wrong about him hitting uh, Wall Street with a pinata stick and that Wall Street was the real cause of the problem of the crisis and that the greed on Wall Street had overcome wisdom. And it was a pretty heavy, healthy, invective uh, at our industry, not necessarily me personally, uh, but uh, he came back very hard at that uh, at that question. And, and in hindsight, I was trying to lob in a softball. I thought he was going to say, well – there's definitely a nexus between Wall Street and and Main Street, and we have to keep that harmony. But he was not hearing it. You know that was joke's playing on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And by the way, that was a month or so before the 2010 midterms, and so being a politician, he was like a dog with a bone, and he was he was going at that thing very hard.
1: You can do this thing called the Salt Conference, which is um, a gathering of uh, I think hedge fund, hedge fund folk. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you booked Bill Clinton
2: once. I did. I booked uh, President Clinton. I've had uh, John Brennan. I've had Joe, Vice President uh, Joe Biden. I've had uh, James Carville. Um, I've had Donna Brazil. I, I But, I, of course, I've had Governor Romney, George uh, Walker Bush, Tony Blair. I really try to make the SALT Conference an all-party, all-ideological experience. I'm not looking to – uh, make it a conservative uh, conference event or anything like that. I may have certain conservative ideas, but I also brought the human rights campaign guys who were working on the legalization of uh, gay marriage in the U.S. And uh, you know, I'm a believer in that. So, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, I guess the one of the main reasons why I could never run for office is the fact that you know, thank God, I would like to keep my family together and stay married. But another reason is I don't fit ideologically in either one of these parties. You know, I'm, I'm, well, I
1: asked about the Clinton thing because yeah. I was wondering if you recall what his speaking fee was.
2: Uh, at that time, it was a lot less um, than it is now. I think he's two and a quarter now. He was probably one and a quarter, 150 back then. Remember, that's almost 10 years ago though.
1: That's a million five hundred thousand.
2: No, I'm sorry, 150 US thousand.
1: Oh, 150,000. Yeah, and he's 000. probably,
2: probably 225,000 today. I hear he's those, those are probably – that's not – a. That's not me breaking any rules of confidentiality. Those are public. No, I, well, you Those know, are I, I know
1: this. I've been, I've been represented by a number of speakers, bureaus, and I know what the uh, what the uh, rules are. And uh, if you want to book Bill – if you want to find out Bill Clinton's speaking fee, create some sort of a function and then call one of them up and ask him what it costs to get him and you'll yep. get that number. Yeah,
2: I think that's his – I think his, that's his going rate right around now. And by the way, he did a very good job. He was uh, – articulate and thoughtful and uh, he answered questions and um, again you know uh, you may not agree with everything that he has to say and there may be elements of what he had to say uh, related to the economic stewardship of the 1990s under his watch uh, but you know at the end of the day um, uh, I think it's a valuable voice you know I would I would as an example I don't know if he would ever be available for this but I would be interested in booking President Obama no problem, and of course, at some point, President Trump.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to be available.
2: Okay, well, I'll have to see. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be a lot of dough, though. That'll be a, a, another consideration for me. Can you explain the Trump-Cruz relationship? Um, no, I actually can't. I mean, I don't think anybody can, but I, I, can, I can offer up some. Some things about life and the political expediency. I think that. Uh, the, the the scarring and the battering in terms of the way these guys went at each other in 2016 has been subordinated to political survivorship and the president's need to have somebody that's right-leaning uh, in a red state and keep the red state red. And so uh, they've subordinated some of their personal invective towards each other um, and it goes back to that age-old adage that politics makes strange bedfellows. So – Um, You could read what they've said about each other and you would say, "Okay, those guys are probably not going to be talking to each other anytime soon. But yet they had a rally where there were tens of thousands of people at the rally in Houston. So um, it's going to be close. But I do think Ted – Senator Cruz wins in uh, Texas if you look at the uh, latest polling. Do you have a publicist? Uh, I have a PR person for Skybridge. Um, I had a publicist coming out of the White House – Um, because I thought I needed somebody to bounce some ideas off of in terms of how I was going to recover from that uh, media excoriation. But that was more of like a crisis management person than anything else.
1: You mentioned you have a restaurant. Yeah. What is it? What's it called? Yeah,
2: so I have a restaurant on 44th Street called the Hunt and Fish Club. Uh, If you know anything about the mafia, I named it after John Gotti's Social Club. He used to call it the Bergen County Hunt and Fish Club. So I figured if they're going to stereotype me in our civilization, why not, why not, put, it, why not put that on my restaurant? So it's a great ste- steak and seafood place. It's located in the Theater District on uh, West 44th Street, 125 West 44th Street. It's got great ratings, uh, very strong co- clientele. It's a beautiful setting. And uh, uh, pursuant to the free market and market-based economics, I made the chef an owner of the place because he's that good.
1: Always a good idea.
2: Amen. Right. Uh,
1: can I g- – I'm going to name a bunch of people and I, if you can just give me a quick response because we're getting yep. near the end here. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, just tell me what you think of them. Um, uh, kind of – I think you, we already know what you think of Priebus and Bannon. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Kellyanne Conway.
2: Nice person. Uh, very loyal to the president. Uh, great messenger. I think she clearly helped him win the presidency. Fifty-two percent of the white women voters voted for President Trump, and I think you could really uh, point to her as being one of the reasons why.
1: I used to follow Kellyanne Conway before she was Kellyanne Conway in the '90s, mm-hmm. and she was one of the sharpest wits on on talk talk shows.
2: No, no question. Very impressive. Uh, Very impressive person.
1: Uh, Jared Kushner.
2: Uh, super smart. Uh, he's uh, shifted into a down gear to be a little bit less high profile uh, because of the flack that he was taking from uh, John Kelly. Uh, but I think he was very instrumental in the, uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA, and I think he's helping the president on the China trade issue as well. And uh, I mean, he's a, obviously a very loyal, very smart guy. John Kelly. You know, I applaud his service to the United States, uh, 40 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, He also lost his child, so he's a Gold Star family member. Uh, And so I applaud him for his record in the military. But he's just, in my opinion, as I express in my book, he's just not well-suited. His management style and the militancy of his management style is not well-suited for a civilian organization. And uh, I think he's hurt the morale inside the White House.
1: In the book, you say he hates Trump.
2: Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think anybody uh, believes that he likes him, uh, and he's made it clear to people uh, outside the doors of the West Wing. Uh, so it's not, it's not, it's not like I'm saying something that isn't true. Ivanka, uh, uh, ridiculously smart, uh, gifted person, great public speaker. Obviously, uh, she's got some elegance and class to her style and personality, and. Uh, I think she's invaluable to the president. I think she's helped him in so many different ways. Um,
1: Mnuchin. uh,
2: Extremely competent, uh, uh, very cautious guy, has done a good job of uh, pushing through the tax reform and other regulatory reform um, and uh, extraordinarily bright. And again, he's an unsung hero of the Trump campaign because he was the fundraising chair and he did a great job on the fundraising side.
1: General Flynn.
2: An uh, American hero. Uh, I think he uh, got treated badly. I'll just echo what uh, President Trump said. Um, I don't know all of the facts of the case, but I think he's uh, he's a guy I like a great deal. I hold him in very high personal regard, and I hope him and his family are okay.
1: The writer Michael Wolff.
2: Yeah, he's a total liar and fabricator. And uh, just a dishonest uh, representation. so he would be like the Jordan Belford of journalism. you know he would be like the guy if you're an honest journalist, you'd look at your look at a guy like him and shake your head. Very dishonest guy. Sean Hannity. He's one of my best friends. Uh, uh, you know, we grew up very similarly on Long Island. Uh, obviously he endorsed the front cover of my book and the back cover for that matter and uh, uh, he's a fighter. Sean Hannity's a street fighter and so. When I wake up in the morning, I say, man, i got to get to work because I know Sean's working three times harder than me. Mueller. Don't know him. Uh, He's got an impeccable reputation, and I do believe that uh, whatever process is going on there, I think he will treat people fairly. That's, That's just based on reputation. Don't know him personally. Comey. Just, you know, again, don't know him personally, but he uh, seems very sanctimonious. He's another guy I would love to debate because I read through his book. I can't tell you. honestly read the entire thing. But there's a lot of sanctimony there and there's a lot of righteousness and uh, no one is that infallible. So, uh, you know, when, when you look through my book, you'll see that I'm uh, citing a lot of my mistakes and missteps in life and things I wish I could have done better. Um, and so I just think there's a lot of sanctimony in, uh, in Comey's book and and – you know, it's that it's it's just too disingenuous for me. George Papadopoulos, don't know him. Uh, he probably uh, got set up. That's what it feels like. Uh, and I think the court system knew that, which is why they gave him such a lenient sentence.
1: Don Jr.
2: Very good guy. Uh, super loyal to his dad. Uh, down to earth. Uh, he's a great campaigner. Uh, he's got a great message out there. I campaigned with Don in the month of September throughout Pennsylvania, uh, and Don is a very high-quality guy. Eric? I don't know Eric as well. Uh, we've inter- interacted briefly, uh, sometimes on the campaign and sometimes on, uh, in joint television appearances. Uh, but it comes he comes across incredibly articulate. and uh, Hope Hicks. Uh, well, Hope and I were very close on the campaign. Uh, we worked super hard. On the campaign, and uh, she's incredibly loyal to the family and to the president. She's got a great new job now, and uh, I don't think anyone's ever said anything bad about Hope Hicks. Super, super person.
1: Amorosa.
2: You know, Amorosa bizarrely, even though she said I cried like a little girl when I got fired, which I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let your listeners determine whether or not I actually cried like a little girl <laughs> when I got fired. Uh I like her. You know, so I mean my attitude is Amarosa came from uh nowhere uh and I don't think you should be firing a person like Amarosa after she worked for the president for for fourteen years on and off by sticking her in the situation room and leaving her there for two hours. I don't think that's the right way to fire somebody like her. So so I'm not surprised at the current vitriol that's going on uh in the Trump Amarosa relationship. Scott I, I, I I predict a uh uh, A
1: comeback? I do, I do. I predict that they'll figure it out. Of course,
2: Scott Walker, a very solid guy. He's got a tough race in Wisconsin. Did a good job for the state. Uh, Always found Scott to be one of the more honest politicians. You know, he was often he was friends with Previs. And when I called Scott, explained to him what Previs was doing to me. He was scratching his head. He said, "This is just nonsensical. It wasn't good long-term strategy on Previs's part." Doctor Phil, Uh, great guy. Um, I went on there with my wife. My wife and I were on the verge of divorce. Some of it was personal, wasn't just political as has been reported. Uh, but we love each other, trying to patch it up. And uh, uh, Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins are friends of mine. And I have to tell you, they were instrumental in helping me keep my family together. So uh, I love those two guys. Schumer. I've always had a good relationship with Senator Schumer. And, and uh fully disclose to you that I, I've been one of his donors uh, he's always been good to me, and uh, he, he had a funny line. He may not even remember this, but he said, we thought you were so good at your press conference. We were looking for ways to kill you. He said, but the Republicans killed you before we could get to you. I thought that was very funny, very honest. Yes,
1: it's cute. Yeah, Pelosi.
2: Um, so believe it or not, I've actually interacted with her. Her uh, her daughter is an award-winning documentarian, and so I don't believe in her political views, uh, but I do have a respect for her belief and her political views. Um, and she's always been gracious to me.
1: Um, how about Duncan Hunter? Do you run into him yeah, ever?
2: I haven't. So I don't really – I can't really comment on him. I mean I know I, from the paper but you, I don't really know him.
1: In your book, you do mention some people I've never heard of. Yeah, go ahead. And I think – I didn't hear of Hope Hicks right away either because yeah. no one has ever done a, a good flow chart of right. the White House. Right. It would be nice if someone did just mm-hmm. to hint it for anyone. hmm uh rona graff and johnny mcinty who are these yeah. people
2: so rona graff has been the president's assistant she stayed at trump tower in the trump organization but for probably 25 30 years she's been his personal secretary enormously talented person and a great person uh and johnny mcinty was the president's body guy throughout the campaign and he's now working on the reelection. election uh but he's a terrific guy young kid very very smart and uh uh, was there from the inception. What about John Brennan? So, John, I know he's spoken at our SALT conference. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for John. Uh, I know the president soared him and John sore at the president, but I will, I'll remind your listeners that uh, he's been at a pivot point in all of the security related to anti-terrorism since 9-11, and he's made a great contribution to our society And kept countless innocent American citizens safe. Uh, And I wish that him and the president would dial back the rhetoric towards each other.
1: What do you think of CNN?
2: You know, uh, they they were rough on me. I write about it in the book where they were. uh, They're still rough on you. They they made up a story. Still rough on me. But, you know, they have a right to do that. I believe in the First Amendment. I have no problem going over there. It's like being a Yankee in Fenway Park. But I have, I have no problem going over there and articulating my uh, view or my opinion. But, uh, yeah, I mean they're, they're, they're not the president's favorite news organization. That's for sure. MSNBC. Probably a little fairer than CNB, C, CNN, believe it or not. I think that their uh, coverage from, like, say, 9 o'clock to 7 is probably more fair, more straight-up news, uh, less editorialization, even though it is slanted to the left. Uh, Obviously, the evening stuff is uh, very left-leaning. But uh, listen, I mean that's the business model now. There's left-leaning and right-leaning outlets.
1: What did you think of the Mitt Romney moment when he comes out and trashes Trump with one of the really just excoriating commentaries, uh, calling him a criminal more or less?
2: I thought that was a mistake. I I suggested to Mitt's uh, uh, body guy and uh, chief of staff, Spencer Swick, the day that he was making that speech to please not make that speech. Um, uh, but I think that was a mistake. And I think that that's, uh, you know, Mitt will go on to win the Senate race in Utah and hopefully he'll find a way to bridge that gap and work closely with the president. They're two great guys, but man, they've got very different personalities. I think that's me overstating the obvious.
1: What do you think you said that you will follow a couple of these uh, economic cycles, uh, do you think the right now the way the market's acting? I also do a stock market thing. I used to write for the uh, for Forbes and mm-hmm. Barrons and a number of other publish, publications. Yep. I, I'm a, I'm a, into cycles. Yeah. Do you think that the market right now uh, is at a top, and it's kind of splashing around up there, or it's creating a kind of a high bottom?
2: I think it's it's more of a high bottom just because of what I know of the economic stimulus and the furthering of that and how that's going to affect earnings. I do think the Fed will be forced to slow down their rate rises as these interest-sensitive areas of the economy start to slow down. The Fed – you'll start hearing from the Fed that they're moving back to data dependency as opposed to just uh, quarterly or monthly rate rises – and so uh, I meant to say month, uh, quarterly rate rises. And so so to me, um, I think we're at an interregnum in a bull market. I think the bull thesis is still intact
1: after all these years. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 11, 11 and, you know remember, these things don't die of old age. They die of uh, deteriorating fundamentals. And so we are cheating history. Your listeners probably know this, but it's worth repeating. Uh, the American economy goes through a recession once every eight or so years, and so uh, we're cheating history right now. We're in the 11th and a half year of an expansion, but I still think we have some room to go because of the way the tax stimulus is affecting uh, our GDP. It's been a real pleasure to be on with you, though. Thank you. You're a good questioner.
1: Well, I want to thank you for being on this uh, interview. We do these every so often and we put them together. And uh, as part of the our show process, we take a day off and we put these interviews on. And that's, uh, I read your book. I thought it was a book I could easily recommend. I think people, especially travelers, you. you could read uh, probably read the book on a round-trip flight.
2: That's what I was hoping uh, for, exactly what I tried to create. I tried to create a airport book where you're going to your destination and returning home. You'll finish it. And hopefully I've left you with some honest insight into what I saw Uh at the White House, but also during the campaign.
1: Yeah, it was very, uh, very entertaining, and had a lot of good uh, chunks of irony and other screwy things in there that it, it, the gossips out there would love this book. I think you're going to have a good time reading it. I want to thank you for being on, and uh, we'll talk well, again maybe sometime. In, I'm in New York; I can buy you yeah, a cup of yeah, coffee after please, the market crashes. Please
2: come, come, exactly. Come in, and we'll we'll <laughs> uh, we'll lament the market together. God bless. Okay, All hope right, to see you bye, soon. Thanks.
0: To show my soul by donating
1: to No Agenda. Imagine all the people who could
0: do that. Oh yeah, that'd be fab. Yeah, on No Agenda in the morning. Yeah, I, well, we yeah. have plenty of people to thank. Hold on, hold on. I just want to say, nice. It, that was different. I haven't heard the mooch that way. I like that a lot. That was good. Tom Starkweather. I was produced. just going to ask you who set up the who set it yeah, up for yes, you because that was Starkweather good.
1: Produced the show. Oh, good. And. Uh, this is when I had on my screen my uh, my Skype screen. I had the picture of of Al Gore with blood all over his face, holding the big. Machete. <laughs> like the like the Friday the Thirteenth or the yeah. G- yeah. Um, and so oh my god! So apparently Mooch looks at it and he, he starts to give his second thoughts about doing the interview.
0: <laughs> and I remember Starkweather Tom. I think he had to he he tried to go a day beforehand, and they were giving him a hassle like security clearances and yeah, all kinds was, of weird stuff. Like, wasn't easy yeah well thanks to tom for that and thanks to, to anthony that was good i like that that was interesting so we don't have any people
1: to thank because on one of these interview shows we don't we, we're we carrying over all the donations to the next thursday show right which of and, course we'll also have a wrap-up of the festivities which are taking yeah, place so as we, we speak the wedding and maybe some interviews at the wedding <laughs> oh god <laughs>
0: Are you you bring? bring, wait a minute, are you bringing your, are you you
1: bringing,
0: are you bringing your Zoom recorder? I'll bring the Zoom, yes. Pick up some, pick up some material. Oh, God. Well, make sure you talk to Tiffany and Willow then. Yes, I will, definitely.
1: Oh, yes. I'll bring the big one then, the the good Zoom. Well, Zoom, Zoom. So not a zoom. No, it's a zoom. A zoom. H. So, so we want to remind people that this show is also requires uh, support. So, if you can help us to go to know, uh, you you will get a newsletter. But some people don't get that. And dvorak. org slash na, and uh, you have all the links there for donating.
0: Yeah, and. You know, you can see how the value network works. We had Tom Starkweather, who we only knew from end of show mix, all of a sudden Tom is, like, available and producing <laughs> producing an entire interview segment with us in uh, in New York. And uh, I think he gets a kick out of it as well. And he has an actual executive producer uh, credit, or, or, like a big one, in fact, as yeah. the executive producer, because, you know, we have but nothing else. Nothing and else. the producer. Yes, and the producer, exactly. You're right, uh, exec and producer. He's the show for showrunner. Showrunner. Particular... Oh yeah, we should add that to his uh, to his credits. Showrunner. Showrunner.
1: Yes. Let's move on to uh, Cliff Stoll, who I interviewed in person at uh, in at his house. Very interesting place uh, in Oakland. And here we go. I've known Cliff on and off for a long time, and he used to do a. Uh... Well,
3: what's weird about it is I used to know you for a long time. Still do.
1: No. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Usually if one person knows another one for a long time, the other one will it's transitive. Be, be similar. Cliff used to uh, do these editorial p- spots where he would more or less just say, get off the computer and go outside and get some fresh air. And that was his message. And it was his message every time he gave a, an editorial. And I think it's still your message.
3: My, I don't have any messages anymore. Is the medium the message? No, I, I'm, my feeling is... Enjoyment of life, having something to do, having something worthwhile in your mind and worthwhile around you, you can get it in a lot of places. Unfortunately, there's a lot of places that you can spin your wheels and and avoid doing cool things or do what feels really cool and, and neat, but ends up at the end of it all feeling, well, I'm not sure I did anything. Uh, my, That's
1: my day. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's everybody's day.
3: Ooh. Ooh.
1: Now you had yeah. you still give speeches
3: occasionally. I, I saw did. I
1: saw an old TED talk of yours once.
3: <laughs> I did a TED talk. Yeah, it
1: was silly. Well, so, you're jumping around on the stage, yeah. and you were. My
3: idea is don't give them a standing target.
1: Yes. You know, well, this is a, if, the comedians do this. They walk well, back and forth on the stage for the reason that it keeps the it keeps people from falling asleep. You you, did, yeah, you I'll, I'll to put them to sleep.
3: Sure, but but to me, it's also. Oh, what did my father say? You know, if they're going to throw tomatoes at you, make sure they usually miss. But but uh, when I went to the, this TED talk, I thought, oh, I'll have an hour to talk. So I thought there's only 18 minutes. That's right. I get there and the guy says, oh, you've got 18 minutes. I say, yeah, but I've outlined an hour's talk. He says, well, compress it down. So instead <laughs> it's of. It's just that easy. Oh, yeah. So I just said, oh, I'll keep the same things. I'll just talk really fast, which is pretty easy because. Mm one of the very few things I learned in grad school was talk fast and get out of there before they can understand what you're not saying.
1: That's a good... uh, I never learned that, but uh, I can understand it. Now, let's go over some of the things that some of your ideals Uh, One that I wanted to talk about. And the, the one right at the top of the list is something we always talked about a little while ago, which is computers in schools. Throw them out. Well...
3: I'm not sure whether you should throw the schools out or the computers out, but throw yeah. one of them out.
1: Uh, my- Explain yourself. Because people say, well, you know, the computers are what the kids are going to have to work with when they get into business and they get into real life. They're going to have to learn how to use these computers. Well, of course. And of sure. course, all I, all I see them using them for is to play games and, and message. But I would assume that if you had a good course in, in how to do uh, Google search, might not be a bad that- use for a computer.
3: Or is it that... The nature of computing, especially commercialized computing, is that it becomes easier and easier to get things done. Fifteen years ago, oh, we have to teach computing in school so that kids won't be left behind. No! Kids learn computing real easy. The hard stuff to learn. How do you put together a legible and understandable sentence? How do you write a how do you write a page of prose that is reasonable to get you say to put on your resume or to get you into college or or to get to, to get through your classes next week uh, my concern is not can kids use computers my concern is can kids use their minds it's we all know Computer skills go out of date real fast.
1: Oh, yeah. The you try to p- go back and use a Windows 3.1 system and see how far yeah. you get.
3: Yeah, the the, the, the the language that you learn today, Python, Haskell, oh, in 10 years, it'll be obsolete. There'll be something new for you to learn. And the, the same is true of various applications. Every application is evolving. A few of them are static. No, I there are some things that it's really useful to know and i think these can and should be taught in school for example how to read for meaning how to write a concise expository statement how to write prose how to write uh, uh, how to put together a mathematical argument how to how logic works uh, it, uh, r- that that students, very few students graduate from college today having read Shakespeare. Well, which is more important, to figure out how Microsoft formats words or how Shakespeare formats words? I don't know which is more important, but I'm astonished that the question is, isn't even brought up. And, well, lots of people spend lots of time lots of time playing games. Nope, nothing wrong with it. But we have so much time in our life that can be distributed in lots of different ways. And some of the cool ways that you can spend your time is, oh, I got to watch a movie tonight. I got to visit so-and-so. I've got to talk to somebody. I, I've i got to play a game. I've, gotta cook. I've got to cook. We have a finite amount of time every day, and of course in our life. And, and the time that we spend... Spinning around in an artificial world is time that we're not learning challenging life skills and practicing them. Uh, Obvious example, uh, for the past 20, 25 years, there have been surveys on campus of shyness. A psychologist at Stanford does an annual survey asking people, how shy are you, They rate it and normalize it. Turns out that there's a great deal of shyness, and it's increasing year after year. Well, nothing implicitly wrong with this, but why are people more shy? Why are people spending less time talking to one another and are more afraid of talking to one another? Well, it's because through their life, it's easier and far more welcoming to interact with a, a, a silicon screen than it is to interact with a real human being. It, it, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, I'll just come over here and say hi and hack around with you and fool around. It's much easier to say, oh, I'll go type on this, uh, tap away on this tablet. There's less investment in local community today where... 50, 100 years ago, it was commonplace that people would volunteer free time at churches, Red Cross, Elk, Elks clubs, things like this, just volunteering time at the hospital. Yeah. Today, they do not. There's much, you know, there's, a, there's several books, one of which is called Bowling Alone, that points out that bowling alleys are finding lots more people bowling but fewer people joining leagues. It seems that people don't have time to coordinate with others to see them face-to-face, but they still want to sharpen their their bowling skills. It's that Hmm. our larger community loses out when we, when I, when you, don't volunteer and put hours in meeting people, hacking around after shul, after church, after uh, uh, fooling around after school. Uh, There's a sense of, hey, I'm really busy. I don't have time for that. Well, I'm really busy, but still I'm... How busy busy are
1: people if you go outside? And I've made a, a collection of photos... Of people who are just like this all the time. Yeah, looking at their screen wherever they go. Uh, on this, they go to a platform at a rail station. They're all there like this, and it's actually very picturesque pictures because of the, the the comedic nature of it. To see a whole bunch of people lined up. Not, I mean, the train could come through with a big. You know, a big uh, buzz saw and kill them all, and no one would notice it.
3: <laughs> or, or, or they could put a chainsaw and just chop off their hands, holding their, <laughs> the uh, holding their yeah. cell phones. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating problem, and I'm. My thoughts are, I'd rather be talking to somebody than collecting messages and reading email.
1: You believe there's an addictive nature to this this, addictive to to this thing. I mean, and and what what, causes? What's the model of addiction?
3: Essentially, everyone it's
1: hyper-social. I mean, you just went on about this uh, antisocial behavior, but at the same time, don't you think it's kind of hyper-social to be all plugged into 35 people you don't really know? Okay,
3: when somebody friends me on Facebook. Are they my friend?
1: You have a Facebook account? No, I don't. No, I don't Put a
3: in when somebody friends, you know, yeah, someone, blah, blah, okay. blah, friend, blah, blah, blah. Are they my friend? Is the definition? Is my definition of friend someone who's connected to me by way of a social medium? Uh, my idea of a friend is, hey, I've got an inner circle of a half dozen people that if I'm feeling down, I can call them and talk. If I'm hungry, I can say, hey, let's go out for coffee and lunch. People that I can wander over to their house with little or no warning and just talk and and catch up on things. My definition of friend isn't someone who sends messages to me by way of a of a widespread application. There are many, many people who have thousands of friends on Facebook. Probably many people who have tens of thousands of friends. But if one of these people stops them on the street, do they say, "Oh, how's your daughter? You know, what? You know, what, is your dad still sick? Are you? You know, do, can they converse and have a heart-to-heart conversation?"
1: Well, that you, or, why or, don't we? Or putting it
3: another way, go, why refer- don't we?
1: Why don't we back off from that concept and, and say to ourselves, we've redefined friendship, and oh, so okay. friend is now defined as so. There may be two two categories. You have the Facebook friend, and you have a real friend. And uh, do people realize that the Facebook friends not is a faux friend, or do they th- do? Are they seriously thinking these are real friends? I I I don't, I, 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 don't,
3: I, I, do, I don't know. I have no experience in social media. I, I'm the wrong person to speak of it. I wish that there were more analysis of it by those who are professionally sociologists, sociologists and I have been about leaders. this forever. I think that sociologists are very happy to work. Academically, and they and here's a here's a something that's screaming out, calling, analyze me. Why is it that people say, "Oh, I've got two thousand friends on Facebook," I got, I, and yet they're going around sort of unhappy. Uh, I don't know. I I'm a physicist. I'm a computer jock. I'm a mathematician. I'm sure.
1: I'm concerned.
3: You don't second, find but, any
1: uh, any attraction of social media. You're not attracted to any aspect of it, like a Twitter account where you can make snide comments to the public at large.
3: I don't wish to make snide comments. No, uh, snide is
1: yeah. That's uh, just uh, the only valuable thing you can do on these. No, systems.
3: no, 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 no. You reminded <laughs> me of of, of of what is it? Um, it's crackers to slip the Roser, the Dropsky... And snide. Hot damn! I remembered that.
1: Right? Is that an E.E. E. Cummings? Uh... No, it's from Mad Magazine of the 1950s. Oh, Mad
3: it's crackers to slip or roster the dropsky and snide. It means um, it's foolish to bribe a policeman with counterfeit money. Snide meant counterfeit money. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, um, what I'm getting at is more uh, what. Email, Twitter, online communications is fantastic for staying on top of things, but I want to get to the bottom of things. What I want to do is understand things more deeply, and that means not being interrupt driven, not being pushed around by every notice that comes to me, but rather researching and learning and working in a few small areas and becoming as, as direct as possible in a small area and not try to keep up with a thousand online friends. More, I'm, 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 and th- this is not a critique of people who spend a huge amount of time online or on Facebook. It's more what I find works for me. In my heart, I want to be closer to my wife. I want to be closer to my kids. I want to be closer to my community, my neighborhood. We're going to be making plum jam, sharing it with the people next door. Well, I can't share my plum jam with people who are on social media. Sorry, there's only about three dozen jars of it. And <laughs> the first call are the people who live next door, help me pick the plums. <laughs> the, the, these it's not like I'm saying this is a, a wrong thing to point your life at. It's more I'm saying for me and I suspect for many though not all others there's something lost if I spend a lot of time poking around at a computer poking around at a screen rather than eh, screwing around with friends with, with relatives and and having depth with a few people rather than shallowness with a lar- large number of people. Uh, who am I to say? Well, I,
1: laugh at me and say I'm all wrong. That's all right. Nobody says that because nobody knows what's right, A. And uh, I've never heard anybody defend social media. They just... They just it, find it as a, a, a fun thing to do it for, as a side. I don't know. I, sure. To be honest with you, I don't have a Facebook account either. And so i have always baffled by the something like Facebook because it just kind of stirs you up and it doesn't really accomplish anything. Ten
3: years ten years ago, I ended up on something called LinkedIn. A day doesn't go by that I don't get notices saying XYZ wants to connect to on LinkedIn.
1: Oh, yeah, LinkedIn.
3: And I'm... Uh, i just have no idea what to do with these things. People, people from across the globe want to connect with me as if I have something to say or something useful to help them with. And I don't.
1: That's not, well, I think you, you may be exaggerating what LinkedIn is really, what's purpose is. Uh, it's to create kind of phone networks of people who maybe could offer you work. Uh, Uh, Well, I can offer
3: nobody any work, so... (laughs) You don't need to be on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, Yeah, it's a... I just have concerns that... well, Well, popping the stack, you're asking about schools. My feeling is the things that we should get out of education are not how to use computers. That's pretty easy. In fact, it's hard to find a teenager who doesn't know how to use Facebook, who doesn't know how to efficiently search on Google. It's hard to find a teenager who's bad at texting. They exist, I'm sure, but they're probably pretty rare. But find a teenager who can stand up in front of 30 students and recite a poem, play the clarinet, uh, explain how, uh, explain the importance of Pericles in the Peloponnesian War, how his speech w- laid the groundwork for Lincoln's Gaysburg Address. You know, that's something that I'd hope at least some of the better, ch- better kids in high school would be able to do and would be a little bit nervous about it, but would be capable of doing. Yet, if we consider that Point of, of 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 schooling is to teach you a trade. Well, uh, okay, uh, learn C Here, here's how you use pointers, and here's how. Yeah. Uh, uh, it it
1: just But they gets, don't do that, by the way. They don't teach kids how to use how to code in C They. I okay, this I, I, don't, I don't To be uh, well, you know, I don't know as much as I should. But but from what I can tell, the uh, computers are considered ancillary to like a history course. So you can uh, teach a little bit, have you read a book, and then do a lot of research online, and then write write
3: a paper. Suppose for a minute, suppose suppose for a minute, I was an evil, horrible, terrible human being. It might be true. Um, And my idea was, I want to wipe out curiosity. I want to Get rid of curiosity. Well, one way to do that would be to say, I'm going to lock people up and not let them near any information. I'm going to keep the books away from them, keep the internet away from them, make sure that they don't have access to information. Will that get will that get rid of their curiosity? Hell no! They'll be more curious than ever. What's out there? Let well, me turn it around, though. If I want to get rid of a kid's curiosity what if i gave this kid a machine that answered every question the kid came up with correctly with you know in in a nice a nice high res screen right doable doable and it even had movies and videos to show sure. kid kid says you know how do flowers grow or what uh, why is the sky blue and it comes up with a perfect answer That would be a wonderful way to eliminate curiosity because you never experience the joy of doing an experiment and figuring it out for yourself. All you have to do is ask that question online and get a wonderful, uh, easy answer right back to you. If you want to eliminate curiosity, provide people with facile Immediate answers. Well, what does any of the search engines take your pick? What do they do? They provide us with facile, easy, quick answers to essentially any question we ask. What effect does this have on students? Well, seems to me that it's a wonderful way to to throw a wet blanket on our indigenous curiosity that each of us is born with. Why should I Why should I explore the world and ask questions? If I want to know what, what life is like in Shanghai, China, I'll oh, just ask this computer and it'll give me well, a bunch you, of...
1: You can be on a train anywhere in the world and you see the same kids that you're talking about. Instead of looking out the window at the crazy oh, sights... Yes! You've seen this. Yeah!
3: The, in, instead of instead of looking around saying, wow, <laughs> I'm looking at some nasturtium flowers. Oh, what do they do at night? Do they close up or stay open? Oh, no, I'm going to look at a screen and stay up on social media or I'll be asking questions or trying to copy and paste together some some report. My, my point is not that, oh, computers are harmful. Rather, my point is that we should be asking ourselves, what is it about an interconnected world that gives us the heebie-jeebies? And one of my points has, when I taught, I taught eighth grade about nine or ten years ago. In teaching eighth graders, there were lots of kids who were fantastic online and texting, and it was surprisingly difficult to get them to just do Ordinary, curious stuff. Mm. Stuff that, you know, eighth graders, you know, no, they, they were perfectly happy not to be doing athletics, but sitting on the side texting. They were, it was sad to
1: me. It's, and, it's always been pathetic to me, but sad is a good way of putting yeah, it.
3: I'm not, what I'm not saying is these kids are turning out all wrong. Rather, I'm asking... Could it be that our love affair with a high tech information system may be leading our kids and adults into rather dreary, unhappy lives? Don't know. I hope not, but it might be. Think, so that's not I what you think, asked.
1: I think hmm? the. Uh, I don't know what I asked. Um, I think they are. I think the unhappy life is is uh, ahead. So you I, see too much evidence of, you know, kids being suicidal for, you know, why is a 17-year-old, uh, but of course, we're, but we're also drugging these kids.
3: There's a great deal of, um. Uh, okay, nobody has it easy between age three and age 30. What am I saying? Nobody has it easy at any age. It's real tough to be a teenager. I don't know whether teenage suicides are remaining the same, going up or going down. It saddens me deeply to hear of any suicide at any age, because people have so much to contribute to this very mundane, dreary world, and the only way the world becomes more interesting and a livelier, more wonderful place is by people doing things and making it a better place. And, and and to the, to the person who say ah what do i have to live for i've screwed up or there's things are boring i i i can look around and say there's so much to learn there's so many cool things going on here there's so much to do with your hands with your heart with your head and yet some people let go again i find it very sad and i'm my concern is, goes to something that you said before a few minutes ago about the word snide. It's easy to be snide. It's easy to be sarcastic.
1: But that is something to do.
3: Oh, of course it's something to do. Be critical. Be mean. Yeah, it's easy to say mean, hurtful things to a classmate. to, to It's even easier to say a mean, hurtful thing on a posting on some
1: yes some board and of course and people uh, specialize in it
3: oh yeah people work hard to troll around and you know there're the whole institutions in St Petersburg where they train people to do this and at the same time i feel you know the community i want to be a part of yeah, it has some sarcasm in it yeah there's there's people who scoff but on the whole, it's largely self-supportive, and friendship is oftentimes built upon mutual interests and mutual support rather than, oh, I'm more snide than you are. I'm, I can make a, a, a flashier piece of of sarcasm than you can. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. But that I, I could- don't know where I'm talking myself into. It's a corner, <laughs> I'm sure, and people will you're blame me for it. You're talking yourself in a but, corner, yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm still...
1: Uh... But I think you're right. Generally speaking, it's everything you say is, is accurate. It's like there is... The situation as it now exists is terrible. And then they want to move on to things. And then when the other issues crop up based on technology, you end up with people advocating, for example, voting over the Internet which seems to me to be just fraught <laughs> with insanity.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of problems with online voting, not least of which is identity, but also is the implicit lack of temporal thought of, oh, I'm going to actually think about this for a long time rather than, oh, I'm going to click on a checkbox. How do you feel about this? Check here. Click here. Oops. Uh, Ten minutes later... Maybe not. There's a certain seriousness that happens when you actually vote, walk to a voting booth and uh, uh that, that you don't that I don't get at least <laughs> when I log into a website and says what's your opinion on XYZ? Oh SurveyMonkey wants to know uh you know, how how long do you cut your shoelaces? Uh, <laughs> it's
1: a How uh, often are you online? On a hmm. daily basis, do you have a computer in the house? Yeah, and you have one downstairs. There's
3: one downstairs.
1: I, Do you get on it? Do you get stuck on it? Like most people, you get what's called falling a, down the rabbit I have hole. A little,
3: I have a little business making and selling glassware, glass yeah. Klein bottles. And I'm in communications with mathematicians who like to send and receive email. I answer a bunch of email several, probably a couple hours a day. Uh, outside of that... Well, what did I do this morning? I unpacked a bunch of glassware. I cut some tiles with a diamond saw. I, putting together a kitchen counter using using some kind of Penrose tiles. So I'm, in last night I was up till 10 o'clock with my wife. We were both reading books from 7 till 10. So I tried it. Keep my computing in my my screen time is eh, eleven in the morning till over lunch till two in the afternoon to three. Yeah,
2: and that's I try to
3: minimize it a day. To me, a successful day is a day that I don't get in a car and I don't see a screen. That to me is a completely successful date.
1: Now, if you uh have you ever been since you do a go, you, you're not computer illiterate by any means. Do you? Is there anything online? Everything's online now. Or have you? Seen, oh
3: no, 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 no.
1: No. I
3: planted some tomato plants two weeks ago. They're not online.
1: No. Okay. Well, you. I'm got, making some plum jam. what I'm just saying it's not uh, online. I'm. No. I'm uh, uh, right. Well, look at look at this. This
3: is. This is glass.
1: Yeah, and it's on. It's, uh, it's not for, online. It's for sale online. It's. it's, uh, it's uh, well, that, you're that's, here. That's, you're not online. Yeah, what I meant. Uh, the, the, what I meant by that on the computer specifically, not in the world in general. Most things are online. And have you ever been surprised by anything you've seen in the last few years? Where you go, oh my god, this is really great. I didn't think I'd ever see anything like this before, and I've here it
3: seen, is. I've seen an enormous number of things online that I've open my eyes say, wow, this is impressive that this is available to me online is it's close to magic. At the same time, for all the flash, for all the HTML5, for all the glitz and astonishing websites, I don't think I've ever seen a website or really anything online that I'd call caring, kind. Supportive, deeply touching.
1: Maybe it's not possible.
3: The things that move me most deeply,
1: like you know, the,
3: the the difference between seeing a child grow up in your home and become an adult. Well, there are billions of photos of people growing up and becoming an adult online. But they're nothing like the experience of
1: this is, being yes. a
3: parent. Of course. And there's millions of websites that tell you how to be a parent who but, but but inevitably you'll learn yourself. And the advice that you get online is worth every penny that you pay for it. It's a Yeah, I've seen plenty online that have that's opened my eyes and what I don't go around saying is, wow, if only Science people or math people had this available to them 200 years ago. Think of what they could have done. No, when I see what people like Gauss, what Einstein, what Maxwell, what Newton did, they were phenomenally constrained with us with incredibly primitive tools. Yet with those primitive tools, they were forced to be creative Today, we have extremely high-quality digital tools, and as a result, we needn't be creative. What do I mean by that? Well, give me a minute to think this one out. When I was a kid in art class, class was sort of divided into two, those people who could draw a tree that looked right and those who, like me, couldn't draw a tree. I couldn't draw a tree. and to look at it and stare at it, and it didn't look like a tree. And the art teacher said, oh, you know, in a way of discarding us, we were the creative ones. And it took a while for me to realize that creativity is the inability to copy. Those who were able to look at a picture and make a copy of that, they got along well in this art class. Those of us who just couldn't copy, no matter how we tried, we couldn't copy. We were at the severe disadvantage We were the ones who were called creative.
1: You don't think that was just disparaging? Of course it was disparaging. Oh, okay.
3: Oh, certainly. (laughs) You you should have been there. Through my life, I've realized that creativity, that institutions, whether they're schools, businesses, institutions don't value creativity. They value the ability to get along and fit in properly, you know, square peg in the square hole. Creativity is rarely valued. I want something to draw the way it looks over there. Just copy that. Well, the one thing that you find across the board in computing is copy and paste. It's, on, it, it, it's built into every operating system at the most fundamental levels, copy and paste. Well, to me, that says it's the nature of deep-down computing that it encourages... Working within a system that's built by you know that fits into OS X or Linux or Unix or 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 a Microsoft operating system, yet making photocopies or duplicating words or duplicating images, sort of tells me this isn't a very creative process. If it's creativity that I want, I think I'd rather see somebody. Use their hands, or get away from the screen. Maybe I'm all wrong about this. Certainly, well, I mean, there's lots the- of cre- there's lots of creative people who are online, no doubt. Mm-hmm. There's lots of creative efforts, but oftentimes it's uh, the tools push us towards oh i'll just copy it out of here slightly rewrite it and paste it over there well it looks like my work yeah good enough i wish someone smarter than me would explore what do we mean by creativity in a digital domain Mm. not just oh that's a really creative thing that i see online but rather what i mean like you, I've sat through so many horrible PowerPoint talks.
1: <laughs> I've given I mean,
3: them. Yeah, I mean, that's just what a fantastic way to poison a talk. Use PowerPoint. So refreshing, so wonderful to hear somebody do a talk entirely improv. You know, without, you know, without using a projector, without using a computer, without being organized in advance. Just saying, hey, I'm going to talk about. And,
1: what you've done? You
3: no, know, of course we all have. Well, we all, to me, that's the nature of doing public speech—to come up with something on the fly. I don't want to be pre-programmed. I,
1: that's why I, I didn't bring a bunch of questions for you, if you haven't noticed.
3: Well, that's that's the nature of you. I, come I, on, I can. You do don't. Pre-
1: it. Come on, I do. No, you don't. I do. I with, I with, yes, I can do it. I can actually have questions down. I go through them. Put a, let me throw a wet blanket on, on hold you. Hold on. Hold on. If you're going to throw a wet blanket, I get, get some more tea. Okay.
3: Yeah, so I, I, I'm... I don't know. For me, doing a talk, it's improvisational performance. I like...
1: Well, actually, uh, when we do our podcast, it's, 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 yeah, it's improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, let's talk about it. Let me throw the wet blanket. Um, because I, I want to hear... The reason Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the wet blanket is because I want to hear your analysis of it. Sure. Early on in the days when you were more of a uh, prognosticator pundit, you made the prediction that e-commerce is never going to go anywhere and it's just a big joke. Meanwhile, of course. Oh, it's wrong. You were wrong, but can you analyze why you were wrong?
3: I was invited to do a talk on... Uh, e-commerce actually it was not even I it was, it was a couple couple of friends of mine I was sitting around talking at the time what you could get online were essentially magazine subscriptions. I thought no way Amazing. and my
1: interest that's ironic
3: <laughs> yeah of course um, today of course magazine subscriptions what's a magazine um, what's a um, rather, what I felt at the time was the richness of going to a store, retail shop, couldn't be matched by things online. Still can't? Uh, I felt that that was far more important than it actually turned out to be. People are perfectly happy saying, I'll order this, I'll click on this, and it'll be delivered to me, and I'll have the thing without the experience of going to the store. For me personally, I felt then, and unfortunately I still do feel now, that Purchasing and shopping should be a an extension of one's persona and shouldn't simply be picking things from a menu in the sense that my feeling is if shopping means acquisition and acquiring stuff, buying something by simply clicking on it, I want that, I want this, I want this other thing, click on it, pay for it, and I get the stuff. To me, that's... a It feels shallow compared to, oh, getting something and supporting the small business or the bookstore that provides it. Yeah. And I realize now that this mental image that I had then may very well have applied to me, but it sure didn't apply to very many other people. Uh, There are lots of people for whom, oh, I... Don't want to go to a grocery store. I'd rather have it delivered. I don't want to meet the person. Well, this brings you yeah. back
1: to your earlier discussion about the antisocial behavior of people who are online all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm now I, so. yeah, which, I have gotten, which, I'm, uh, I, the, the, I have discussed with people the fact that they don't like to go to the store, the grocery store, to buy stuff. They'd rather have it delivered. Uh, I don't understand the mechanism, because I like buying stuff online. I use Amazon extensively, but I love going to the grocery store to see what's fresh, to see what I'm going to cook based on what's available, as opposed to just randomly picking something out of a recipe book and then having it delivered to me. So I, I don't I don't know why both can't exist in the same they s- do. sphere. They do, but it, I don't okay. think...
3: Okay, uh, f- way off t- off topic of uh, I live right next to Berkeley, as you know, I'm in Oakland. About ten blocks from here, five blocks from here, Yeah, ten blocks from here is a little tiny grocery store, truly a ma-and-pa grocery store called Star Market. It's been there since the 1920s. During the Depression, the owner of the store gave out credit to local neighbors so they could get through the Depression. Old-fashioned. Very old-fashioned. That man's grandson still runs the same grocery store... And the prices are probably 20% higher than the nearby Safeway that's two blocks away. And Safeway sells the same stuff, cheaper. Well, my wife and I go to the Star Grocery Store. We have for 30 years and will always. And we know the owner, we know the checkout clerks, we know who's who. We get together. There's friends of ours that we talk with there. We can, uh, it's a meeting hall. In the way that the Safeway isn't, and if the Safeway isn't a meeting hall, having goods delivered to my doorstep certainly is not. You you don't even see the person who drops the stuff off. If I want a rich community where I know the people around me and I'm invested in them and they're invested in me, necessarily I'm going to have to go out and meet them someplace at times. I did not understand that, 20, 30 years ago, that this really was a rather rather silly, rare thing to ask of people. People genuinely, hey, I'd rather save save money, and especially I'd rather have it delivered to my door rather than go out and walk along an island, and yeah. pick things off a grocery store, uh, off a grocery shelf. Um, yeah, I was wrong. Boy, was I wrong! And
1: well, early day, I mean, you can't.
3: It's I was. You I, was not, the, the, I was,
1: the, the, the wrongness of it is always a, is always a variable. And what they, I mean by that is that if if it wasn't for Amazon uh, and the genius of Jeff Bezos, an insane genius. Uh, you don't know that it wouldn't have caught on. I mean, the differences structures were there for it to go either way. This sure, been sure. It's something I've noticed because I've been writing about technology
3: Efficiency, since. economic efficiency is a powerful, powerful engine. And online online ordering and personal delivery is damned efficient. And more power to it.
1: Turns Good. out. Yeah.
3: At the same time, I'm rather... I guess I live in a quaint world, and I'm, <laughs>
1: I've never escaped looking, from I'm it. looking around. Looking around.
3: Yeah, right? It's all quaint. There's, I, I, what are you looking across? There's well, what I books see...
1: Books and, well, also some old wallpaper that seems to have been from the... 1920s. Uh, yeah, it's the
3: original wallpaper to the yeah, house. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's, it's yellowed, but it's quite attractive. Yeah. I'm, I kind of like wallpaper I mean, in general.
3: People... Yeah, it's a... Yeah. Oh, that's the house when it was. Yeah. When it was built, and this guy right there, oh, he's a member of the Wobblies, the International Workers of the World.
1: Oh yeah, I remember that group.
3: Yeah, yeah. And about oh, okay, okay. No, this is probably don't broadcast. Shop. This. No, this Shop should be the good. Following out.
1: You sure? Um, yeah. It seems silly. Well, but let's see.
3: Story to tell you. So about thirty, thirty-five years ago, nineteen eighty-four or so. I'm in Berkeley, and I'm working up at Cal at the at the physics department, and I bicycle by this house, and the, house, the sign of the house says, this House is- for sale, this house, okay. right here. H- house for sale by owner. So I walk in, there's 100 people crowded in. Uh. The house costs, costs a fortune. I walk out and say, no way, I'm not going to buy a house like this, so don't think anything of it. Next day, I bicycle by, there's a guy sitting on his porch looking over papers, and I yell out to the, th- to the guy, hey, mister, did you sell your house? Guy yells back, yeah, I sold it. So I get off my bike, walk up to him, start talking. He says, yeah, I sold it. I got the three offers. And I say, well, what do you do? He says, oh, I'm a labor lawyer. I say, you're a labor lawyer? Do you know about the IWW, the International Workers of the World? He says, boy, do I. I'm writing a book about it. Really, I say. Tell him, you must know songs of Mr. Block. And he says, I sure do. And he starts going, Oh, Mr. Block, you were born by mistake. You take the cake. You make me ache. So I join in. I take the next verse. He takes the next verse. We're singing all these old labor organizing songs from the 1910s to each other. Yeah. And it's going back and forth paddling and we're talking about the international workers of the world. There he... And... Half an hour, an hour goes by. I said, geez, I got to get up to Cal. I'm a postdoc there. I got to get, and the guy says to me, oh, you can't go yet. You got to buy my house. I say, come on. No, seriously. He says, no, I want you to buy this house. I say, first, you got three offers. Second, I can't afford it. I'm just a postdoc. They don't pay me nothing. Third, I got an apartment in downtown Oakland. It's cheap. He says, the house likes you. Everybody else who wants to buy it <laughs> is an investor. I say, okay, I'll buy it. Well, pay you whatever anybody else is. He says, shakes my hand, said sold, hundred sixty thousand dollars. I say, yeah, but look, I ain't got that kind of bread. He says, I don't care. I like you. True story.
1: So, what was the year that this took place?
3: Nineteen eighty three, eighty hmm. four. And the guy says so we go over and this guy's mortgage broker and he laughs at me. He says, You're a postdoc in physics at Lord's Berkeley Labs? They say, Yeah, they pay me twenty thousand, twenty two thousand a year and he says, You're gonna have to make thirty five, thirty six thousand to afford that kind of mortgage. So I say, Well no, ask my boss. So I my boss, a guy named Louis Alvarez, he's a Nobel oh, Prize. Very famous. Yeah, so you know Louis. Yeah. I went to Cal. Uh, yeah, so I go up to Louis and say, Hey, uh, you know, I wanna buy a house and gotta make thirty five thousand and Gruffle, you—you never accomplish anything. You're a son of a, you want thirty-five thousand dollars for just going around. Okay, for the next six months here, get this paper signed. So, it gave me a raise as a research associate for thirty-five grand. I get this thing signed, show it to the mortgage broker. The mortgage broker looks at, it and says, "You work for Louis? Louis Alvarez? Wow!" <laughs> yeah, and he says. Oh wow. well, yeah, you got enough money for it, and he stabs things, we die bicycle over to a bank. <laughs> Three months later, I own this house. I've never had it inspected. I don't even know how many bedrooms there are in it. I don't know whether I'm being ripped off. All I know is the guy who's selling it and his wife are labor lawyers. And they're really friendly and that and so I move in. And the guy was right. The house liked me. And I liked the house. And so that's what you see here.
1: (laughs) That's the uh, the original of the house. Very little embroidery in that story. (laughs) You
3: know, it's it's this
1: is Well these things happen. Yeah. That is actually a pretty funny story.
3: And it's it's sort of if I had done it the right way, talking to a real estate agent. Oh yeah, you wouldn't have gotten the house that
1: liked you. Yeah. Yeah. Um
3: you know, and I'm not saying this is the way to do things. It's
1: it, but it, it works.
3: It sometimes works.
1: Since you were up at that, one of the guys up there. One of the this is as a side. One of the researchers, uh, physicists up at the at the lab, and I don't can't remember which one it is, but he's got this theory that he brings out once in a while that the Earth is on a collision course every something like seventy million. Rich Muller. Is it Muller? Yeah, Rich Muller. He goes great. through the asteroids yep, yep, and he yep, kills yep, off yep, everything. nemesis.
3: Yeah. Rich Muller. He's he's sharp. He, in fact, he was one of Louis' students. Yeah. Uh, Rich is... Is uh, he still up there? I'm sure. I haven't seen him in three or four years, but mm-hmm. he's... Oh,
1: you, uh, I'd love to sit if down you, with him and uh, chat with him. Just get a hold just of... Just about him. that. Uh, he... The theory, it makes nothing but sense, and it seems to, you know, you can't... It's, almost, it's unprovable, but, but the, the, the. The
3: wipeouts, of the, yeah.
1: Yeah, the, sure. the, the, the historic yeah. record going back millions yeah. of years yeah. seemed to indicate.
3: Yeah. Rich Muller, uh, uh, Nemesis. Uh, in fact, Rich was one of the guys who figured out after uh, Louis and Walter Alvarez figured that it was a giant meteor that hit the earth that wiped out the dinosaurs. Rich was one of the people who figured out what happened oh, enough crud was put in the air right. that we had a climate change for a few hundred years. That's what killed the dinosaurs. Yeah, Not the, like you, they were hit by
1: meteors. The, the vegetation yep. couldn't... Get it, they, these guys needed big plants.
3: Yeah, yep, yep. And yeah. uh, and suddenly things turned cold because sunlight wasn't getting down. So it was a... Working with people like that was such a joy. It was... Uh, I'm sorry, don't get me started. Uh but yeah, that's how. I
1: uh, Yeah, it was a good yeah. Uh, well, that group was. You old. were around. You. Yeah. yeah, I was. As a matter of what fact. What were you doing at Cal? I, took, I was a history student. With whom? Uh, With, well, Kenneth Stamp was. Oh, my, Kenneth
3: Stamp! I just read his book on the Civil War. Not which one? It's right over there. The one, the causes of the Civil oh, War.
1: Oh, the one where he's got the seven or ten essays different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
3: like a two dozen essays. I just read it two nights
1: ago. Very, very good book.
3: Yeah, this guy right here. Mm-hmm. Just, just reread it two nights ago.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've read this book. Yeah, I
3: mean, the guy is smart. Just collecting. You know, he has a Marxist revisionist view of why was there a civil
1: war. He has. A little bit. uh, I think the whole department is somewhat like that. But uh, it it really. Yeah, he um, was my counselor. Hot damn! (laughs) Every time I tell people that, they go, what? Who? And the thing was, he was a very funny guy because Uh he. He's a rubber stamp counselor for, for mm-hmm. one thing, uh-huh. and he look over what you're doing. And he's very casual about everything. He's very funny. Uh, I never took a. I don't believe I took a course from him. I took a course from May and uh, Winthrop Jordan and some of the other hot shots. Mm-hmm. But it was always funny to have him as a as the guy. It was because he's very impressive. Well, this
3: reflects back to what I was trying to say earlier, and I'm no good at saying it. I'm. I believe that. The ability to read and review history is damned important and allows us maybe not to learn from mistakes, but at least to better interpret what's going on in current events. And one of the things that I'm saddened about in schools today is that...
1: They don't know anything.
3: Well, they're not... History is considered, oh... We'll teach you the following facts, rather than no, we'll, they don't exist. Yeah, the, rather than oh, there's five ways to interpret what happened here. here Boy, this Stamp's book, is, book is,
1: it's it's is the best example. There's 50
3: ways to interpret the Civil War. Yeah, it's a superb example of why uh, why saying oh uh, the Civil War was caused by slavery. Oh, a lot of people say that. A lot, a lot of people, say, people say no, it was caused by economic forces. Others, oh no, it was caused by. <laughs> It was inevitable, given the Marxist... I'm, again, I love computing. I love programming. I love technology. But I also like, appreciate, and admire critical thought. And I don't see enough of that being promoted. It's a reason why I think history especially needs not just to be taught, but needs to be appreciated.
1: That's the hard part. Saying you have to find enthusiastic teachers that can teach it to people who don't know that they will like it. You have to, people don't know, you know, it's like the good marketing. This was what they always said about Steve Jobs. He says he doesn't study the market, he tries to guess what people don't know they're going to like. Because if you ask yeah. somebody, would you, would you Would you buy this? It's brand new. And you'd say, I don't know. I don't think so. It's too weird. Yeah. Yeah. But if you could show someone, you know, you get them to well, try it. And you get them to start using things and get them to go on and start thinking differently. Then all of a sudden it becomes a huge thing that would have never been predicted. If you remember the Xerox machine with the first copying machines, they studied it. They said, nobody wants these machines because nobody wants to make copies. Uh, they've said the same thing with uh, with database management. Nobody wants these things. Cause Kodak the, and the digital imaging oh, well, systems. Oh, that's a pathetic story. I mean, story. hey,
3: uh, Rochester, they New York. They invented still. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And More than invented it, they promoted it within a very small community, thinking, oh, if we keep the secret over here, we'll be able to keep this cash cow running.
1: Coast, yeah. Yeah, but it's a... But people don't appreciate history because they're not kind of convinced, or they're not, there's the, the enthusiasm. This time it's different. This time
3: it'll be different. Oh, we, you know, we, we're not going to make the same mistake. You know, Cassandra yeah. keeps walking out, saying, "Oh no, 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 no! Bad things are going to happen." And go away, Cassandra. You bother me. Yeah. We're going to be. We're, we'll do it the right way this time.
1: Well, uh, it's never uh, done the right way. That's the problem, of ever. Of course. So um, yeah.
3: Uh, uh, so Ken Stab. Wow, <laughs> it's just absolutely cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: He was the he was he is the most brilliant of the analysts of the Civil War when it comes to causation. Uh, everybody else discusses various aspects, but causation is still up in the air. And there's been I think you're you're right. They, oh, now it's just slavery. Yeah. None of these. Then uh, there's some wacky things in this particular book. There's one or two of these things that are just like what?
3: Oh, I can't remember
1: them offhand, but I do remember
3: enormous. And this is forty wack.
1: years old. Yeah, this book yeah. and. And the book we're talking about is The Causes of the Civil War, uh, edited by Kenneth Stamp. It's yeah. a bunch of essays, including Lincolns and Jefferson Davis, Frederick Douglass, and a whole bunch of crazy off-the-wall stuff.
3: Oh, and and there, and the interviewer studied under this guy, Ken Stamp, which <laughs>
1: impresses the hell out of me. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's like, wow. Um, he had a lot of st- Yeah. Lot so, of
3: anyway, that's, that's Berkeley for you. You know, this... <laughs> Similar, similar feelings
1: of... Yeah, well, you're working with Louis Alvarez for a guy, I mean, those other guys. There's a lot yeah, of famous people at the yeah, lab Yeah, there's Glenn Seaborg and people yeah, there. Seaborg. But,
3: but it was all, you work with these people, and uh, hell, what... It was like midnight. I was writing code midnight or so, and Louis walks in the door and says, what are you working on, kid? And I'm saying, well, I'm work writing computer code. What's it for? <laughs> it's 11.30, midnight or so, and it's... I'm, you know, writing. Was he that Gr- gruff all the oh, time? Oh, yeah, he was gruff. He was, uh, he was a gruff to those who he felt needed gruffness, and if he didn't know you well, you got gruffness from him. Uh, he tried to be a son of a bitch, but he wasn't a very good son of a bitch. He was, turned out to be not a nice guy. But he, I said, Well, I'm working on this writing code. What's that code? What's that line there for? And I said, Well, I'm working on off axis hyperbolic mirrors for the Keck telescope. Yeah, but what's that line for? Well,. I'm trying to figure out what the Fourier transform is of a of an off axis hyperbole that's a hexagon. He says, Well, what's that line for? I say, Well, that particular line you're pointing to figures out, you know, what's the sign side, side of the angle of incidence coming out to the mirror and blah blah blah. I explain it. Half an hour later, he says, Okay, keep going. Okay. See you tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like it was like I had to explain half town. He needed to understand down at the grain of sand level. Yeah. And if I could do that, if I could actually explain at that level, he was—he felt I was okay. And I was able to. So I was okay in his mind. Uh, and
1: he... So he didn't put up with bullshitters?
3: Oh, no, 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 no. You got nowhere if you... Uh, every Friday at his house, there was a Friday meeting at his house of physics jocks. And uh, it was scary stuff. You were you got in front of two dozen physicists, all of whom were out for blood. You better be able to defend yourself. And I just caught a computer hacker who was breaking to our Unix boxes,
1: right? And this was your uh, this was your cuckoo's egg, yeah, cuckoo's egg. Your yeah. book, The book, what yeah. was the t- full title? Yeah,
3: cuckoo's egg, stalking the wily hacker, something yeah. like this. Anyway, yeah. And you invented
1: yeah, he, forensic computing,
3: yeah, yeah, it was the first. Yeah, so hey, Reed, so I go to Louie's house to do a talk, and I start talking about this. And it was the first time that I ever had to explain what it means to break into a computer. I had to explain what is the ARPANET, what is the Internet protocol, what's TCP. And I had to explain it from the register stack all the way up to the highest level, what's, you know, how does the email work and how do you... Uh, What year was this? This was 1986. Uh, And doing this in front of Louis, I mean, and the rest of the gang, you know, it was scary stuff. Because, not because you don't know it, it's because you're in front of, you're in front of the real examination group. Mm -hmm. And I passed, you know people said ah flying colors no problem at all you you showed the old man your stuff you did okay <laughs> and that was enough for me you know that's
1: yeah. uh that well, it became uh, a best selling book was a, yeah, it was a yeah
3: yeah it became best selling book it it gave me the license to do stupid things and i've done plenty of stupid things uh, with, yeah. with that license of uh, you know <laughs> mathematical modeling but the the uh i i'm it's time for other people to be doing cool things.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm sort of. Are you seeing anybody fully... out there doing cool things?
3: Oh yeah, they're all... met some people doing 3D printing of of completely bizarre mathematical shapes. And I'm saying, wow, real neat to see people taking weird fractal images and hmm. poking them into into plastic. I'm seeing people do. Oh, There are some cool things that I've bumped into. There's uh, a guy that I know who's working on the collision frequency in planetary rings and modeling it in a computer in a most creative way using Markov chain and stuff like this. Just stuff that I know that... Oh, I see somebody doing it so much better than the way I would do it, and I'm saying, "Wow, very pleasant, very nice." Huh. And, and then there's lots and lots of pedestrian stuff, just like when we we're in at Berkeley. <laughs> there's people who waste their time saying, "Oh, I got to uh, level up to level 17 in this," <laughs> and big deal. Uh, so, the, which is where we started talking to begin with. Uh, it, it's. Uh, Keep... I guess I'm not cynical, saying "Oh, oh get off my grass." Uh, I, I did all this great stuff. Nobody will ever. No, people. I'm thoroughly impressed with some of the stuff that I see happening in computer security. I regularly follow.
1: Oh, so you kept up.
3: I've kept up, and I'm, I'm really impressed with how forensics people, you know. People unwind digital attacks and can find signatures of just what group was it that did this? How are they hiding? How are they pushing things around? And it impresses the hell out of me. Uh, I'm impressed with companies that are organized to let, let their computer jocks just watch to see what the traffic is. And see what's weird and unwind it. Really impressed. I'm impressed with, frankly, I'm impressed with the security systems that are growing up in places in our modern operating systems. Security itself is being pushed sort of further and further to the left in the development charts. It used to be, oh, Tell me a problem and we'll patch it. But build in security, bake it into an operating system. No, no, that's not for us. We'll, we got to we got to meet this deadline. Get well, it out the door. Never important. Yeah, security will become important. If as soon as you tell us you got a problem, tell we'll fix it. Increasingly, it's oh, security is a spec at the beginning, yeah. and and uh, uh, you don't start writing code. Without having first baked it in at the start, very impressed. Um, i Is there bo- anything
1: in specific? Anything specific that that uh, oh, so, catches your eye?
3: Um, I'm seeing. Boy, can't can I? I'm seeing a major company in Silicon Valley essentially freeze releases. Not freeze releases, but um, make semi-major releases that do nothing but more deeply address security problems. Which to me is astonishing. In other words, a major release coming out that does adds almost no features, but just makes the whole thing more solid. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm delighted. I'm impressed. Yeah. I'm see the. Uh, I'm seeing less and less reliance on passwords, more, you know, double factor authentication. Uh, I'm seeing good things in that direction. Enormous popularity of capture the flag and even lock picking, at amongst computer security people, just tickles me, and I just just have big smiles when I see yeah. this happening. I mean, there, there's
1: a we have a number um, of listeners to our podcast who are. Uh, Technical, to say the least, but there are a lot of penetration tech, testers. Yeah,
3: pen testing, a and I, lot. I hear yeah.
1: the stories from them. They're just yeah. fascinating it's to the point where some of them actually have to break into the facility.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it, it get to brings,
1: the computer and put something in and see what happens. It
3: brings a smile to me that once upon a time there, once upon a time, this stuff didn't exist, and now it's it's in one sense a game to uh, to people to others. It's oh. I'm actually going to break in and and leave leave a little poop for somebody and see if they stumble across it. Still others I you know, a friend of mine at a computer security got together, showed me how to repin all the locks in my house and I'd sort of know, know, known how to do it before. But they I said, oh, you show me how to do master and sub-mastering? Sure. Now I have master and sub-mastering on my uh, on uh, schlag lock on my front door. Big deal. You know, somebody from your podcast will probably come by and pick it now. But, I so doubt it. Um, it, it's, it. It's I'm tickled to see this happening.
1: It's like, yeah! Um, do you do any work in the field anymore?
3: No. I speak occasionally of uh, in a most embarrassing way for me to talk about computer security, it's like inviting uh, it's like inviting uh, Dwight Eisenhower to talk about politics. I, uh, no I've, i'm I'm old hat, uh, old school. I felt long ago that the network, the ARPANET, which evolved into the internet really was an academic playground for fooling around and having a... sending email. You didn't have to put a stamp on a letter. You could send email. It would get across the country in the same day, sometimes within the next few minutes. Right. Now, um, the academic playground soon became commercialized, became a playground for people to develop cool things and for a few people to make bad things happen the development of malware leaves me not very happy the use of computing as an intermediary between peace and war leaves me very cold I'm very sad at what I see happening uh, using going back to the Stuxnet days where computers were weaponized as a to promote political points of view and now uh, that what happened in the uh, 2016 elections leaves me really cold that uh, theft of information online is used to, to cause uh, to, to bend elections it's i find it very upsetting but then hey
1: <laughs> i'm
3: uh, it's not this ain't my world anymore i sure <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> not uh well, that's not going to end.
3: Yeah, it's going to get worse.
2: Yeah, it's going everything to get worse is going with to get the, worse.
3: With the one minor thing that I'm observing, and I hope that the people who are listening to your podcast who are really tuned into computer security, I hope they'll say, yeah, you know, you have a good point there. Maybe I have a bad point here. I think that OS's and widely deployed applications are becoming more secure. There are more people working to detect problems and fix them than there ever has been before. That gives me hope. It means that it's, I hope, in the long run, going to be more difficult to steal credentials to to pose as somebody else. The spread of false information, I think, will always be a challenge. But the theft and manipulation of information, I hope, will become increasingly difficult. Maybe I'm all wrong.
1: Well, how about y- this? Y- y- you know, you do have an issue with the people who, who are the computer users that are ignorant. And, for example, you talked about the stolen data. Oh, yeah. The Podesta yeah. data was stolen on a phishing of attack. Course. It
3: said, yep. You know,
1: some click on this, boom, the yep. whole thing's done. Yep. Uh, is that, that, that seems to be the, be the, uh, the the bottleneck here, the,
3: uh. Oh, ignorance. Oh, surely. Yet at the same time, two-factor authentication, quality crypto being used that requires, oh, oh, I have to use facial recognition and a fingerprint to, to only get into one email. I hope that with time, fishing will become less and less effective, just as people, as people become better at it. Something I was going to mention that um, I've been thinking about, and you probably can say this better than I can. I've been thinking that what happened to the fax machine. Remember
1: the fax machines? Oh, yeah. Doctors still use them. So do pharmacies. Yeah.
3: What killed the fax? Well, my theory is we don't have any faxes, not because they didn't work well. They were great. Not because they were expensive. They were cheap. What killed the fax was the exploitation of the fax machine by fraudsters in places like fax.com that just bombarded people's fax machines it, with crap. It drained the paper. Yep, yep. Drained the paper and used it until finally people said, I don't need this stupid fax. And... People stopped using it just because it was such an annoyance. My claim is that's what's going to happen to voice telephony, that people are slowly refusing to answer their telephones because, hey, there's so much scam. There's so much just robocalling.
1: Oh, it's unbelievable.
3: And... I think what we're going to see happen in the long run is people will simply say, I'm not going to use the phone. If if I don't recognize the person calling me, I'm not going to answer it. And what will happen will be the, teleph- the telephony system that has taken, you know, what, 150 years, 130 years to develop. I think it'll slowly wither. <laughs> and... and 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 the entire reason being that it's so cheap and easy
1: to scam to
3: scam people. Yeah, and it's true. I I I don't know if I hope I'm wrong or I hope I'm right, but I think that with time, people become immunized to it and say, "Hey, I'm going to answer the phone." And and, and uh, as things get exploited, people develop immunological responses.
1: Yeah. Right? stop using my, yeah. a lot of the millennials to, to this day don't use the phone hardly ever even yeah. when they just text everybody
3: yeah text it sure yeah. and the, the people who are most exploited are old people because they're accustomed to trusting oh well they're something.
1: also more susceptible to getting scammed yeah yeah. often sure well so, on that yeah. note I think we've got enough material here I think this, I'm going to stop yeah, this off. thing yeah And I'll uh, show
3: you something cool downstairs
1: okay here And that was Cliff Stoll in Oakland. Uh, I got a lot out of that interview. Uh, I haven't seen Cliff for a while, and I thought it was fascinating to chat with him like that. And the cool thing about him is he's one of those guys who can just talk. Yeah, so if you like to interview people and you don't want to get yourself too involved, you know, with your own opinions, that's people don't want. They hear us all the time. Every that's true. That's true. That's true. So why do they want to hear more of me? So, Cliff loves to talk. So as you could tell, it was quite entertaining.
0: Every which way, I loved it. And thank you for doing that, John. Uh, It was extra extracurricular activity for the wedding, for the show, for humanity. Thank you. Gets me out of the house. This is true. All right, everybody, we'll be back next uh, Thursday with a regular episode on Deconstruction, of the best podcast in the universe. Remember us at Dvorak.org slash NA. We'll have uh, double donations, uh, people to thank, on the next show. Coming to you from Austin, Texas. In the morning, everybody, I'm Adam Curry. And from on the road, I'm John C. Dvorak. We return on Thursday right here on No Agenda. Until then, as always, adios, mofos, and such...
2: Devorak.org/na.
1: Now everyone hug and share a secret.